0: Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where uh, we review films uh, with a sound effect. Hmm. Ah, there it is. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. Uh, a rather snotty one at that. <laughs> uh, I write for Slash Film, and with me as always is the uh, my... Counterpart and far less snotty half, William, why don't you, you introduce yourself?
1: Still pretty snotty, though. It's allergy season. My name is William Bibbiani. Uh, I am also a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. I write for The Rap. I write for Consequence.net. Uh, and I am very excited to be with you today. Uh, we, we didn't release a lot of podcasts last week. We ran into some personal and professional stuff that kept us away, and we are eager to get back into it and hit the ground running. And we've got a lot of movies to review this week on Critically Acclaimed. Oh, yes. And big ones, too. Like, these are all, like, pretty prominent releases that people may have heard of in their travels. Uh, We're (laughs) going to be... Some of them quite notorious, and we'll get to that. Uh, More than one, actually. So, uh, this week, uncritically acclaimed, we're reviewing the new releases, Smile. It's a horror movie called Smile. Maybe it should be called Frown. Because it's a horror movie, not necessarily because it's bad. Uh, Also, we've got Bros, uh, the new uh, uh, queer rom-com. We've got The Greatest Beer Run Ever, the latest film from the director of Green Book. Uh, The Munsters, the latest PG-rated comedy from the director of The Devil's Rejects. We've got Hocus Pocus 2, which is the sequel to Hocus Pocus. And Blonde, the latest very controversial biopic of Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. Lot to process there, a lot of, lot of, a
0: lot of weird double features. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, I, I saw two of those films back to back, like in, in one evening, and yeah, it was kind of a whiplash for me. I don't doubt it. Uh, I yeah, I, I, I like that you said a, a horror movie called Smile, but it should be called Frown. I would love to see that on the poster. Just Smile, but it should be called Frown because it is a horror movie and people die in this movie because Um, it is about death and horror. A
1: lot of horror in the movie called Smile. Let's start with Smile.
0: All right, let's talk about Smile because you know what? I kind of dug Smile. Sam. So what (laughs) Then we're done. Moving
1: on. (laughs) No, Whitney, Whitney, tell us about Smile. What is Smile?
0: Okay, uh, Smile is the uh, latest a mid-budget studio horror movie. How about that? Uh, Twenty twenty-two has actually been a, a remarkably good year for horror movies. Most years are. Uh, I've, I've always admired the genre for its resilience. Uh, Smile is actually uh, a pretty interesting film about trauma, and it re uh, it, like it, it stages trauma as like a supernatural thing. So mm. it's about a, a young psychiatrist mm-hmm. uh, named Rose. Uh, you'll know her note, her name because a monster screams at her constantly throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she works at a mental hospital, and she's overworked. And uh, a patient comes in. They have maybe a ten-minute conversation, and the patient lays out uh, everything that's been happening to her. She uh, witnessed somebody uh, take their own lives recently. And ever since then... Has started to have these really violent hallucinations, where people she knows or just random people in the street will sort of appear in the corner with a smile on their face,
1: and not just any smile, like a super
0: duper creepy, very like, strange, a, like a horror movie smile. A smile. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and this has, and she says that this has been driving her to see things, and has been sort of altering her behavior, and then, wouldn't you know it, in that very same session, she sits bolts upright, she has the smile on her face, and in a rather brutal scene, takes her own life in front of the psychiatrist. Uh, and... It seems, however, as the uh, the film progresses, that that, affli- that sort of like supernatural affliction has been passed on to the psychiatrist and mm. what she needs to do to sort of figure out what's going on, the kind of investigation she needs to go through. Mm. Uh, this is a big bone of contention for her boss, who's played by Cal Penn. I didn't know he was in this movie. That was pretty cool. Mm. Uh, she has a, a, a kind of an incredibly bland fiancé, played by Jesse T. Usher. Uh, who's just sort of I don't understand any of this. He he's he's almost like uh, a horror movie Baxter, like the kind of char- <laughs> the character who, like it the, the, just the, like all these compulsory scenes of I don't believe you. And she also has a psychiatrist herself, mm. who uh, points out to her that she is actually suffering from a lot of trauma of her own. We actually see in a pre- prologue that she also witnessed her mother dying when she was young. Mm. So a lot of this could be. Uh, and that that introduces sort of this element of doubt, you know, is something supernatural happening or is this something that, you know, is she having some kind of mental break? And over the course of the movie, we get to know which one of those things is actually happening, how much of each of those things might be happening. Uh, and I feel like it's playing really fair with sort of the, the horror movie rules it sets up. Yeah yeah this is a this is Uh, a horror
1: movie this is a this is a curse movie basically it's not the most common horror genre and i think people don't always think of it as a subgenre. but this is everything from the ring to final destination to the killing of a sacred deer Mm -hmm. Uh, these are supernatural afflictions they're not always easy to crack or solve you don't just like oh shoot the zombie in the head like yeah how do you do that with just a spectral affliction and uh, here, there are rules. Uh, I'm not going to ruin it because most of the plot is about figuring out those rules. I do like that yeah, the yeah. rules are not like... it's not. It doesn't turn into Death uh, Death Note, where it's just nothing but rules and like trying to figure out <laughs> right, like, uh, loopholes and everything like that. It's really not about that. It's basically, uh, you, you said at the beginning, it's trauma as a supernatural affliction. It's uh, this horrible event that you have witnessed has passed on this specter to you and you may need to try to pass it on to someone else but can you do that without dying in turn um this is a movie that is about trauma and it's also a movie that inflicts trauma it uses the language of trauma in order to frighten the audience and i think that might be a little too Hmm. intense for some people uh because like even the title sequence is like trying to break down your 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 defenses it's pretty bad. I mean, yeah. good, but it's like it's it's terrifying. But it's also like Jesus, f- stop! Uh, they're like <laughs> inc- they're like these incredible like it's it's not like The Exorcist where it's full of subliminal messages, but they are these very quick images of extreme violence that yeah, uh, yeah. that just really just oh my god, gee, stop that! What are you doing to me? And what I love about this movie is it's exceptionally it's exceptionally aware of how jump scares work, and I don't just mean. In terms of okay, you got to make sure the timing is right. You got to make sure that you don't scare people the same way over and over again. All of that stuff is true, and it understands that, and it's it'll get you, it'll get you jumping. But what it does uh-huh. great about jump scares is it doesn't think jump scares are the end result. That that's not that's not the goal. Jump scares are yeah. a means to an end, and what this movie is doing is it is using jump scares. It is using the constant reminder that there is no safety, there is no security. You are vulnerable to at least yeah. being startled, and that wears down your defenses until you're just as exhausted as the protagonist. And even you're, you're and you're just like, oh, just five minutes movie. Just there's one scene. <laughs> there's a scene later in the movie where the character we'd seen earlier comes to see uh, the protagonist is played by Sosie Bacon, who's uh, Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick's daughter. She was in. She was the best oh, part okay. of that series, Here and Now, that we re- reviewed on uh, Cancel too soon. Uh, oh, that's that was her. Yeah. Okay,
0: yeah, she's really talented. I, I, I didn't I, see her on Mirror Beach Town. I heard that
1: was kind of a breakout role for her, but I, I didn't see it. Uh, but she's super talented, right. and I like her. But like, there's a bit towards the end, and everything's just kind of come crashing down, and she's starting to accept her fate, and someone like visits her. And for Mm. a moment, you think, okay, so this is just... They're going to have a conversation, and I can relax for a second. It's just going to be a conversation. And then just when I'm getting comfortable, something really fucking frightening happens. And I'm like, no, I was (laughs) relaxing! Like, it's so intense, this film... That you can almost get mad at it, but I think that's so effective, and that's not going to be for everyone's. Taste, oh, absolutely, but yeah. It's for me. I was scared crapless <laughs> at a lot of this movie. I was genuinely frightened at a lot of this movie, and that's—I'm yeah, yeah. a big horror nerd. That's—that's that's not easy to do. Like I've seen a lot, and this movie found new ways to do it. That's really cool. Yeah,
0: there, there's a, a few scenes near the end where they're—they're they're trying to sort of like pull out the big scare guns, where it mm. gets a. I think maybe a touch ridiculous it might be something to do with just sort of the way those scenes were shot, but that's all I can really say without giving anything away yeah um i uh but like i said i I think what I can tell it was really scary because I got to see this in a crowded theater, and there was a lot of uh cussing and tittering mm. going on in the theater, like it had that that fun sort of haunted house vibe mm-hmm. while I was watching it uh what's great but smile however, isn't. It's not a fun picture. It's not like a, a really raucous good time. It's actually, like you said, it's incredibly intense. Uh, so yeah, I think everyone was just kind of riveted, and it leaves you on kind of a, a down note. It's not not mm. you know.
1: No, it's not. A, it's not a happy film. It's not
0: like oh, isn't it's not that like great a that we all figured out this, like, how to survive yeah, because, like,
1: and everything's great. It's like no, it's gonna. This is this yeah. is gonna fuck you up, and that's like it.
0: Yeah. Um, when you when you start to look at it as uh, sort of a metaphor for trauma, like it's, it's blunt, but I think it does play a little bit fair Mm. with the way trauma tends to operate and, uh, and I, l- I like that sort of central concept that, that trauma is, is sort of the supernatural phenomenon that, that like passes from a, a one person to the next.
1: It, it's I almost wish they'd had like a speech about this to clarify it, because like, I'm, I'm not everyone I think is going to pick up on this, but uh, just because they're involved in the film, not because they're whatever. But like so hmm. much of what we now take for granted in the medical sciences were once uh, beyond our knowledge, and a lot of the times we would assume... There was something supernatural about that. There was something though; these yeah, are these yeah. are mysterious vapors or the, you know, uh, demons or, or or whatever, and they're just things that were ineffable and we couldn't understand them. And there's something really creepy about going back to that, like undoing that. Okay, so we know a lot <laughs> about trauma. Okay, but what if we don't? And what if sometimes it is actually a supernatural thing? And when we think of when we talk about like sharing trauma and how it, trauma mm. can be intergenerational because we don't always process and deal with our mental illnesses. And then we are around other people and it's, it makes life difficult. And, mm. you know, there are movies that I've seen that handle that really badly. There's a movie called Lights Out. Oh,
0: uh, yeah, I was, I was going to bring up Lights Out, yeah. actually. <laughs> Lights
1: Out is kind of a haunting movie. It's kind of a curse movie. It's kind of in the middle there. Um, it's based on a short about a monster you can only see when it's dark. Uh, mm-hmm. But turn on the light, it's gone. But it can still move around; you just won't see it. But it's it's a great engine for jump scares, and it turned into a reasonably scary movie. But it's a movie that's about uh, a mother played by Maria Bello, uh, who mm-hmm. has been dealing with mental, it's like severe mental illness, her whole life, and she has made life very difficult for her daughter played by was it Teresa Palmer. It was Teresa Palmer in that movie. And she had another daughter as well. Right, yeah. Who played the other daughter. But like, made it very, very difficult and it's, the whole movie is basically this haunting has attached itself to Maria Bello but it's all a metaphor for living with someone with severe mental illness and how difficult that is and how that can, you know, affect you and make you worry about your own mental health. And the solution to the supernatural problem that Lights Out Mm -hmm. comes up with in order to end the film is, if you (laughs) look at it allegorically, extremely irresponsible. Yeah, yeah, it's a terrible, terrible message, and if, I believe if, the if plan we're, we're was to, to make up movie. for that and make it like in a sequel. You'll see that like it it didn't really work out, but they never made that sequel yet. So all we are left with is a film with mm. a really gross message.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, and I, uh,
1: I think, I think suggesting that trauma can be easily fixed with horror rules and like trying to come mm. up with a loophole and some kind of spectral thing is probably worse than giving a movie a melancholy ending.
0: Right, right, right. Um, I, Smile doesn't do that, though. Smile, I think, um, ha, has at least, because it's about mental health professionals, and because there's, you know, two of the main characters are mental health professionals, I think it at least has, like, one eye pointed in that direction. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it, it at least is acknowledging sort of the, the actual psychological underpinnings of what they're telling rather than just having sort of a, a monster film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to your point about jump scares, I think um jump scares, you know, they they I I'm a, a sucker for a good jump scare if something really sort of startles me, I think that's kind of fun. You mm-hmm. know, because it's it's fun to be scared in the dark and you know, the other kind of that that haunted house quality. But uh i feel like jump scares too often are used as sort of the uh the release it's like mm. there's all the tension in the scene and boo it's the cat and everybody jumps and oh haha! you can kind of take a breath now and yeah. everybody's safe it, it, it's like it's like it's, a it's like a comedian
1: like you led me to like a, a bad pun. like you got me <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. oh, oh, on
0: oh you 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 scampy movie you got me uh, not not like shrimp scampy. You I was scamp about to say. It, scamp uh, qualities, um, but I feel like Smile uh, does something with jump scares that I don't see too frequently. Which is, it gives you the jump scare, and the scene continues after that. Yeah, the scare like, keeps going. <laughs> yeah, it's so like, scary. and this jump scare happened, but the character is still scared after that. It wasn't a release for them, so it's not a release for us either. So it keeps the tension really, really high. If, if you're sensitive to, like, really high-tension movies, you might not like this one just because yeah. it's going to, you know, keep you uh, keep your nose to the grindstone.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's super intense, and some of the imagery is genuinely shocking. I did not expect yeah. to see some of the things, especially towards the end. They really pulled out a couple of, like, surprising bits of imagery uh, towards the mm. end that I was just like, I did not think we were going there. Okay, that is some fucked-up shit. That is some seriously, seriously. This is uh, it's interesting (laughs) because you you made a point. Like we we go to so many horror movies to be entertained. Uh, Sometimes it's like sort of a grim, almost morbid entertainment. But there's a lot of horror movies where we go to just it's all in good fun. And this one is just like this is not fun for us.
0: Yeah, like you signed
1: up for something, and we're gonna we're gonna go some places, and it's gonna be super duper dark. And, yeah, it's just consistently really disturbing. I love the camera work in hmm. this movie.
0: Uh, so the, There's like a lot of in, like Dutch angles and inverted images. Yeah,
1: it's they do a lot of, like, sort of, uh, you know, like, when you're covering a scene, sometimes you like, let's say, like, two people are looking at each other directly face-to-face, and that's, like, an axis. And then we'll, yeah. like, cut to a, an over-the-shoulder side of somebody. So now, if we're looking at that axis, we're at, like, I don't know, like, 25 or 30 degrees this is always Mm. at 90 degree angles for a lot of the movie you're getting a huge wide experience of everyone in their environment you're getting a sense of Mm. where they are their space constantly and it's a brilliant choice for this kind of a horror movie because it gives you the false idea that you understand where you are and you understand what's going on and you don't It reminded me of that one amazing shot in The Exorcist 3, which if you've never seen I will not ruin for you, but there's at least one shot in The Exorcist 3 that's one of the scariest things ever put on camera. And it's just because they (laughs) understand how you need to hold a shot. And you need to get people used to what they're seeing so that when you do something frightening, they had no idea that was coming. They were lulled into a false sense of security, and this movie is all false security.
0: Yeah. um, This is... uh... From what I can tell, this is the first uh, feature film from this writer-director. Their name is uh, Parker Finn. Yeah, they did a short uh, evidently, film this that is, was uh, kind of the
1: inspiration for this,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, this is adapted from their own short. Uh, this is cool. Uh, I, I hope uh, Parker Finn has, like, more interesting things to say. I'm always interested in sort of new horror talent and adding adding to that canon. It's a very exciting debut. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm very interested to see what they do next. Um,
1: tell me about, because I didn't get to see this one. I really wanted to. Uh, okay. Because it, 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 it looks funny, uh, but I didn't get to uh-huh. see it. Tell me about uh, Bros, the new film from Billy
0: Okay. Adler. Yeah. Uh, bro, uh, Bros, it's a romantic film. It was directed by Nicholas Stoller, uh, who did uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall and... Uh, uh, neighbors and uh you know a, a bunch of uh known high, uh, yeah yeah uh, high profile comedies yeah. uh r- and also written a lot of interesting films wrote like the muppets and uh uh door the lost city of gold which i know is a f- uh, film you're very fond of oh i, for- I forgot um,
1: he wrote that. that that movie's great yeah 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 okay cool
0: uh this is a it's a romance film uh uh, Billy Eichner, who also co-wrote, uh, plays a character named Bobby, who is, uh, he's 40 years old, he's a podcaster, uh, his podcast is called The 11th Brick at Stonewall, uh, which, yeah, it's a joke, it's like, we all know, we all have a pretty good idea as to who might have thrown the first brick at Stonewall, but did you know that it was a guy like me, a cisgendered white gay man, who threw the 11th brick at Stonewall? Oh he's, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> He's a very very talkative neurotic character uh, and he is opening uh, an LGBTq plus history museum in New York it's uh but they just lost a bunch of funding so he's really obsessed with getting his museum open and he's really uh familiar with a lot of queer history and he's uh, eager to talk about it with everybody he meets and then he's willing to talk about himself a lot and then he just keeps on talking and then he makes things really really bad and he keeps on talking that's his big vice is that he has he just talks a lot damn podcasters uh, i hate them yeah wouldn't you know and he's 40 and he's never had a serious relationship uh he doesn't believe like in in a certain kind of romantic love anymore and he's uh, fine, talking to uh, people on the board at uh, the LGBTQ museum, and he's okay having uh, he's seen early in the movie having a like a really quick, incredibly cheap hookup on grinder, uh, and uh, he's out at a club one evening, and wouldn't you know it, he sees uh, Aaron, played by an actor named Luke McFarlane, who I'm not really familiar with. Uh, mm. He's on a TV show called Brothers and Sisters, um, and. Uh, Aaron is like a, a, like a super athlete stud. Like he's got the baseball cap and no shirt in the club. And, uh, their first conversation is about how this guy's going to go home and and have sex with this, these like two meathead guy, married couples. And it's like, yeah, then we just do that a lot. And I'm into like this group thing. And, uh, their conversations are actually really kind of sweet because they are really antagonistic at first in that romantic comedy sort of way. Mm-hmm. But then they start to uh, discuss discuss themselves a little bit more and they get to know each other a little bit more and wouldn't you know it, they're kind of falling for each other. Oh, that's kind of nice. Uh, it's kind of nice. Um, here's the brilliant sweep that we have with uh, a film like Bros. Because uh, the, the two main characters, yeah. the Billy Eichner character and the, and the Luke McFarlane character, are both 40, the conversations they have aren't about being flustered or falling in love for the first time or experiencing something, uh, you know, groundbreaking. Uh, these two men are adults and a lot of their conversations are about their vocation and where they are in their lives now and how they have kind of reached a lot of their goals. Uh, the Luke McFarlane character, he works as a lawyer who like works on people's wills And he hates that work. Mm. He's like used to talking to old rich people about what they're going to do with their money. And he just finds it a complete grind. Yeah. And Billy Eichner's work at the museum uh, has become kind of an obsession with him. And so uh, there's this kind of brains versus brawn Dynamic mm. sort of forming between—that's the where the title of the film co- comes from. You like you like bros, you like athletes, you like guys who work out. And Billy Eichner doesn't work out. He's kind of just just an average guy. He's, he doesn't go to the gym. He doesn't work out. You know, he's not buff athlete man. And so that makes him very neurotic. That uh, this really handsome, you know, typical stud guy would fall for a guy like Billy, mm. oh, Billy Eckner, and uh, and. Meanwhile, and I think this is actually, a, to, to the film's credit, we spend a lot of time with the Aaron character. It's not just about the Bobby character. Mm. Uh, and he actually starts to see that he's actually not quite on the same book-learning level as, as the Billy Eichner <clears throat> character. So there's he, he feels like maybe he's a little bit insecure as well. We get to see both characters' adult insecurities. Uh Making, so these moments where they actually connect are actually a lot more meaningful because they're connecting in this really kind of adult way. This is not like a brash adolescent fling of it by any, any stretch. Mm. Uh, And meanwhile, of course, there's plenty of funny moments. Uh, uh, The, uh, one of the conceits is that they need a big grant for their museum and wouldn't you know it, Deborah Messing. Might hmm. be there, too. She, like, she said something really untoward on social media, so now she has to make good by giving a big donation to a museum. So they go in, and uh, Billy Eichner is so concerned about the state of his relationship that when Deborah Messing walks in, he asks for her advice. And Deborah <laughs> Messing has this really wonderful, you know, scene where she's like, "I look... I I don't want to listen to all of the relationship problems of every gay man. I played a character on a TV show once a long time ago. It, it, it's like a really, it's a really wonderful scene with Deborah Messing playing That's herself. Cool. Uh, Kristen Chenoweth shows up in her, as herself. Uh, you'll, there's actually a lot of fun cameos near the end. Um, mm. But yeah, I, 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 this is a, a, just so so wonderfully constructed in the way it approaches adult relationships as opposed adult romances rather than sort of a little bit more childish ones. Uh, it has gay history coming out its ears. My God, I love this movie about all, all of the scenes where they're discussing uh, you know the the modern queer scene, but also like the way history plays into the modern queer scene and how that is a big concern for for the Billy Eichner character. I, I feel like. Uh, it's trying to just say everything. Like it's it's so eager to say a lot that it kind of yeah. it might stumble a little bit. But it, it, yeah, it's just really really happy to get there. And I was happy that I went there. Um, so 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 you hated it? It was just you, you didn't like. Oh no! It. Oh, oh oh, William, it's so sweet. It's so Aww, sweet and it's sweet. so smart. And I really and it's really romantic. I just I really really loved it. I'm really really um, glad. I'm so bummed that I didn't yeah. get to see it. I'm
1: actually I'm going to recommend some movies to you. Because you're not familiar with the filmography of Luke McFarlane. Luke McFarlane has been making rom-coms for a while, and I just don't think you've been paying attention, because he made a lot of them on Hallmark for Christmas.
0: Oh my god.
1: He made, uh, amongst amongst as many films, for Hallmark Christmas. Uh And actually some of them are really good. He made Sense and Sensibility and (laughs) Snowman. He made A Shoe Addict's Christmas. Now, okay. <laughs> That that might not sound great, but I'm going to I'm going to let you know also starring Gene Smart. There you go. Also good.
0: Uh, um, uh, we've got right. Karen
1: Kingsbury's Maggie's Christmas Miracle, which is just hard to say. Uh, but he was Kingsbur- also
0: I'm guessing Karen Kingsbury is the author and the book is Maggie's Christmas Miracle. It, but it's
1: an it's a mouthful. It's not a it, yeah. it would be like Stephen King's Kings Kingly Kingdom it's a little weird Okay, uh, but he was also in this is honestly in my estimation I've fallen off and i don't watched as many as I used to one of the best all time Hallmark movies uh, it's called uh-huh. The Mistletoe Promise and it stars Luke McFarlane and Jamie King as uh-huh. people who aren't really super into Christmas but they have to do a lot of Christmas events for work and so they agree to just sort of date each other for Christmas and just be each other's like event date like oh there's a there's a thing at work, and I'm the only one without a date. You'll come with me and vice versa. And then, of course, mm-hmm. they naturally fall in love. But it's yes. genuinely great character work, and Luke McFarlane is a big part of why that works. Okay, like He's, he's way the- too good for most of those movies, but when they're really good, it's because people like him are really bringing their A game. And admittedly, so did Jamie King. So I'm really, really okay. excited well, that Luke McFarlane is getting out of that. Because usually that's like yeah, a that's place where <laughs> you get stuck. Like, that's what you do Uh now. Or maybe you're, like, a big actor and you do one, but then you get to come back up again. Like, he was there. Mm. So I hope this is an opportunity for him to break out, because I always thought he was really, really great. And I didn't even realize he was in Bros, and I would have tried even harder to see it if I'd realized.
0: Oh, wow. Well, in that case, uh, now that this has been made clear to me, because I didn't look him up before I saw but there's actually a whole series of running gags about Hallmark Christmas movies in yes. this movie. Yes. Uh, and they awesome. mention and uh, they mention that, uh, Hallmark Christmas movies are like the gayest thing on television now because they like Hallmark. I'm not sure if I don't pay as close attention as you, mm-hmm. uh, but i I do know that queer characters have finally started appearing in these movies for the longest time. Yep. They were like the straightest, squarest like most boring thing you could watch, pretty much yeah, and now they're still square and boring, but now there's some queer characters as well there's there's more uh, queer and...
1: characters, there's more people of color there's it's it's, it's mm. getting better. Uh, okay. it's, I, w- so I still would not say it's you know amazing but it's getting a lot better mm. and there are some decently good examples of representation in hallmark
0: movies so right.
1: but the... the the ratio is still way off they have a long way to go but it's it's getting okay. better then... and they're then they've started will... having more queer characters with actual romantic subplots we're starting to see more who are actually the main plot mm. which is exciting so yeah. it's getting better
0: yeah, in that case, you will definitely appreciate the gag they make early in the movie, where uh, they they walk past a TV showing. It, they don't call it Hallmark; they call it like Hall Star or something that yeah. sounds like Hallmark, and uh, and they say, Come, "Coming uh, coming to the Hallmark Channel is a new bisexual Christmas movie called Christmas with Either." <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah yeah so
0: there's actually like and there's a scene later on where they go to like the hallmark christmas village and they make a lot of jokes about the hallmark christmas movie phenomenon so all those jokes
1: have an amusement park
0: yeah all of these jokes now make a, a lot more sense now that i know that one of the lead actors is a guy from all those movies
1: seriously hallmark should have like just like a block like one like square city block that's just mm-hmm. always Hallmark-y stuff. There's always fake snow. There's always carolers. You can always get a cup of hot cocoa or roasted chestnuts.
0: Mm-hmm. You I can visit Santa that. in the wintertime. because <laughs> right would, now it's Santa's village.
1: I realize that, but like they should have that all year round. Like I would at least like on the weekends or something. Like I would go to that. That sounds great <laughs> to me. Like that's that sounds like a treat. Anyway that's really, I'm glad bros is great. It, it, unfortunately it didn't do well at the box office, but I think that has a lot more to do with the fact mm-hmm. that people don't really go see comedies at the box office right now.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, they're, it's, they're mostly and, you going know,
1: straight to streaming, like even the big stuff right now. So I just don't think there's,
0: it's, yeah, it's I, like I, event um,
1: programming.
0: It, it was, um, Scott Mendelson over at Forbes. You know, he, uh, he does, you know, box office yeah. reports. He's just concerned yeah. about the business side of things. and, Uh, he pointed out that it's kind of natural that a film like Bros ought to bomb uh, because, yeah, even the films starring, like, the big comedy stars like Kevin Hart and, you know, Melissa McCarthy and and, uh, Will Ferrell, like, those are going straight to video now. Yeah. Those are going straight to streaming. And so when your lead is uh, an actor like Billy Eichner, who, you know, known quantity, but, you know, not as big a star as, like, Kevin Hart,
1: Yeah.
0: uh, it's, he's not going to be a big draw.
1: No. No, no, at, least, at least not in like, just in terms of pure star power. What I do hope mm-hmm. is that it's a word-of-mouth thing and that pe- more people go see it uh, yeah, because right. that can happen with the smaller film and the comedy. I remember, remember, when this is years ago now, but I still think the principle applies. I remember when My Big Fat Greek Wedding came out and it got okay reviews, not great reviews, and it opened at like third or something. And everyone's like, and then mm-hmm. that's probably the story of that film. And then it stayed at like number three for months. Uh Uh-huh. It just it never I I think it might have like on a on a slow weekend finally like inched up to number one or number two, but like it just stayed in the top five for months. There is a market for it, but they don't tend to go out en masse for kind just rom com. Sometimes they just sort of like it to be around and they stick around and they keep going. So I'm hoping it's gonna find its audience. And maybe it'll find its audience on streaming when people are like they don't have to go out of the house to see a comedy, and they can finally just watch it, and then they'll love it, and we'll talk about it on social media. Yeah, yeah. I think that's just the way of these kinds of things now. That's just how these things build.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. But we'll see. Yeah, yeah it, it reminded me a lot of like uh, some of the. Uh, it, it was it was like a better version of some of the queer romantic comedies I saw like wh- back in the '90s oh, when yeah. you know, there was a, sort of like a bit of a queer film boom, like a little mini boom there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it reminded me of like one of those because it you know is is very queer it talks about queer history and i love that about it um so yeah i I think this definitely has an audience even if it's just like weird people who remember that boom like me but you know we're out there so i I really hope people find this one because it is really really very good
1: well i'm definitely going to check it out um let's move on let's talk about another film uh from a famous comedy director uh this is the latest film from peter farrelly uh, okay. who, when uh, he, he stopped making films like, you know, the Dumb and Dumber films with his brother, uh, he ended up making a... Uh, let's just go with trite uh, <laughs> drama <laughs> called Green Book, which ended up winning Uh-oh. several Academy Awards, including Best Supporting Actor for Mahershala Ali and Best Picture. Uh, and uh, that film... It's interesting because the both films... Are about Green Book and this new one, The Greatest Beer Run Ever, are about white men from New York in the nineteen sixties who are forced to step outside of their bubble and discover Um, that the world is a lot more like complicated and difficult for people who aren't them, and then they just kind of get to go home at the end.
0: And uh, it's it's interesting. It's the idea that. I think the idea is social problems can be solved if you as, a, a, like, a, a white guy...
1: uh uh-huh. the presumed audience is, is white people, yeah. clearly.
0: Yeah. Has, uh, ...has the wherewithal to realize something about yourself. Mm. And in the abstract, I can see why that's an important message, but... Um, yours isn't the most interesting story here
1: no I actually don't even think in the abstract that works because again it just it makes the assumption that the person who needs to be convinced that something matters or that the world is Mm -hmm. in a bad place is the most important person to tell a story about I understand that you're trying to reach an audience who might not who might need this message you might need to know mm-hmm. more about racism in America in the mid-20th century and today. I understand someone might need to know more about the Vietnam War, which is what we're talking about, the greatest beer run ever. Uh, but there's this level of condescension and pandering to it. Uh, but mm-hmm. even worse than that, there's this weird assumption that this person's story will be riveting to anyone who doesn't need that message. And it's just yeah, not. Yeah. And I thought Green Book, as... as it's competently filmed. The performances are, especially Marshall Ali. Mershal Ali's really good in that movie, obviously. He, mm. he, he's a great actor. Uh, Viggo Mortensen's playing a, a cartoon character, but whatever. He's kind of funny. It's kind of fun to see him like eat an entire pizza in one bite. Uh, yeah, but I mean, when, when he folds it up
0: like an envelope and eats it, that's that's a, yeah. that's a highlight.
1: Well, that's how you do it. But uh, uh-huh. in, in The Greatest Beer Run Ever, this is a story. It's also based on a true story. It's about a guy named Chickie Donahue. Played in the movie by Zac Efron. It is -hmm. the late 1960s. The Vietnam War is raging, and Zac Efron plays a merchant mariner. He's off on on boats, uh, but he's currently between gigs. He's hanging out. He's living at his parents' house in New York. Um, He's sleeping in, drinking late, pretending to go to church instead of actually going to church. He's a shiftless layabout, and Mm -hmm. he is talking to his friends and his family about all the people that he knows who went off to Vietnam. A lot of them volunteered. They went to Vietnam. They wanted to serve their country. They believed the patriotic propaganda that they were told that mm-hmm. we don't mean we may, we might not understand what we're fighting for in Vietnam, but the government wouldn't <laughs> steer us wrong. They wouldn't lie to us. They, it must be really important. So Chicky oh, believes that now. a million percent. And it pisses him off that the media isn't reporting all the good stories coming out of Vietnam and that his younger sister, who's either in high school or college, uh, is upset that the people she knows keep dying Mm -hmm. for something they don't even understand or believe in. And she started joining protests around town and he's deeply ashamed of that. And he starts talking to all of his beer buddies bill murray has a small role as a guy who runs the local bar mm-hmm. and they talk about how man it's it's a shame that all those soldiers when they find out about you know what we're doing back home that we're not supporting them if i could i'd go over there right now and give each of them a beer and chicky donahue <laughs> that, that, says that, i could do that that's what he that's so the only he thing does. he can
0: think is like he, he wants to give them a beer he wants to, this is his plan.
1: He thinks this is actually going to mean something. He's going to, he finds out that there's a boat taking munitions to Vietnam, like really soon. He gets like three like cases of Pabst Blue Ribbon. Uh, they, I don't. Okay. They, they, we, don't he, we see him load up his duffel bag and the duffel bag's got to have, based on how many beers he seems to have in there and how many beers we see him, it's got to have at least 30 to 40 beers in there. And he's a, mm-hmm. he's an able-bodied guy, but you know that's a that's a lot. And then he's just sort of are, toting are around like it weighs are, nothing, he drops it in the back seat, like he just sort of throws it out there. And I'm like, all of those are going to explode. And also, those weigh a lot. I I I know that you, I don't know what we're doing here because the whole movie is going to be you tugging around a whole bunch of beer. And when you put, like, 30 of them together, that's not nothing. It's, the movie mm. forgets that. At one point, he wears it like a hat because it's raining. And I'm like, that's, like, 30 beers. That's not going to be comfortable. What are you doing? It, is
0: it is it cans or bottles? Cans. Okay. Now, granted, uh,
1: cans weigh less, but it's still 12 ounces, which is well, about a
0: pound. Well, consider this. Together, uh, that's,
1: that's not nothing.
0: Consider I mean, this. Uh, yeah. In the 60s, uh, beer cans weren't made of aluminum. Mm. They were made of tin. Yeah. so they were heavier yeah there
1: you <laughs> they, go. they were thicker boom. and heavier indeed so boom it's 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 absurd that it's the central conceit of the movie that we forgets about it anyway he gets to Vietnam he's got about four or five people he knows personally in Vietnam he's gonna he's got three days of leave he's gonna try to track him down
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that leads him t- from uh, military bases to the front. He ends up because uh, civilians aren't supposed to do any of this shit. Uh, he ends. He finds out that like there's a whole bunch of CIA in the area, and like they're just sort of walking onto bases and like not telling anybody what they are and just be like, oh yeah, I'm a tourist. Wink, and all, all the top brass are like, oh great. So everyone assumes mm-hmm. he's CIA, and they take him everywhere. And that's not really encouraging about our about how the military works, but. Um, <laughs> He ends up, he meets some of his friends, and uh, most of them are pissed. Like, uh-huh. you, you came here with, I almost died running over here to to see you. Like, there's a bit where he goes to the front and he says, oh, is, uh, I forget the guy's name, oh, is, is is Bobby here? And the guy says, yeah, Bobby's at the front. We'll get him over here. And the guy thinks he's CIA, so it's important. And so Bobby has to run in the middle of the day, in the middle of a firefight, dodging bullets, Go see Zac Efron so Zac Efron can give him a Pats Blue Ribbon to boost his morale. And thank God the movie is, has that guy kind of chew him out for that because yeah. that's some stupid shit right there, and it does kind of <laughs> point out that this is this is nonsense. But the problem with the movie is, it, I mean, this is a true story, and I'm not going to say it's it's not an, a somewhat interesting story. I'd read a newspaper article about this.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
1: The, pro- the problem with the movie is that the movie treats all of the horrors of Vietnam as a backdrop to Zac Efron learning a lesson he could have learned at home by watching the news or listening to his sister. Just by listening to yeah, that's, someone, that's, he could have gotten that's the, that's all the most,
0: of uh, That's the most frustrating thing about this kind of narrative, that... No. Uh, the education is ready and there. this person like the main character is already surrounded by people who could give them yeah. that kind of information it's not like and he's completely it's,
1: sheltered it's not oh. like he no one is talking about it he's surrounded
0: by it he's just obtuse. yeah and uh this idea a that he's not getting that information like he's not seeking it out like that's really frustrating but mm. it, it, this is like a cliche about like men about maleness. Yeah. Uh that that they have to kind of make this quest of something in order to hear the message. And that's really frustrating as I well wish, because yeah. we already have the the answer for them at the beginning mm. of the movie. It's i all wish, waiting for them and they have, they have to I, sort I, of wait I, for them yeah. to go through these like jump through these hoops.
1: I know it's it's just it's just impatient. And again, I get that some people in the audience need to hear this. I don't know who still mm. doesn't know that the Vietnam War was a shit show, but someone i guess needs to and and i and listen if you wanted to make this a closer parallel to like america's military uh um engagements overseas today you know in the last Mm -hmm. few decades you could have it feels like this the time for that allegory probably would have been you know more towards the beginning of all that rather than now uh so Mm -hmm. i'm not sure how relevant it really feels at the moment because there was that moment, the the the, the level of patriotic fervor that Chicky and his friends feel—they uh, haven't joined up, but like they're still like super supportive. Yeah, the war is good. Is the same kind of misguided patriotism that followed like nine eleven and was present. When, yeah, yeah uh, We relied about the reasons for the we lied to about the reasons for the Iraq War, the second one. Um, so that it doesn't really they they never really tie it in together now, and I kind of wish. The movie had concluded with him because eventually he does meet up with some old people from home, but the the message isn't. I, I should have listened to you. He, he has it a little bit, but like he really should have been more mm. of that. Instead, it's all about no, you don't understand. See, it doesn't matter that you know you didn't change their lives by bringing a beer. You gave all the people at home hope, Chicky. And I'm like, we didn't see jack shit of that. <laughs> That's not fucking what this was about at all. This was about a guy going to the going to Vietnam who steadfastly refused to believe that it was terrifying out there, finding out mm-hmm. firsthand that it was. And the movie scaling that back as much as they possibly could. There's a couple people who die in this movie. It is tragic, but it takes so many, like, it it, it just it pads the boxing glove with uh-huh. like nerf teddy bears like it's just it's trying <laughs> not to hit you there's a there's a scene in the movie early on where uh he's in uh vietnam and he's tricked his way into getting onto an airplane and they say yeah we can take you to the front right now and mm-hmm. uh he's like great okay so i'll just get on this airplane yeah you just have to wait for us to t- unload all the dead bodies and then we'll let you on and that should be a moment where it's like he has to just sit there and watch them unload enough dead bodies to fill an airplane mm-hmm. And yeah, that,
0: that could have been the moment It's like, oh, wait, this is serious. There's that, actual death in this war.
1: That's a hell of a moment. And you can see him kind of struggle to maintain his worldview while he is mm. in directly face to face with this. And instead of even just I realize you don't want to wait the whole you want to you don't want to stay 10 minutes on this. I get it. It's a movie. But instead, they just say that, and then like you just see someone kind of just walk past the foreground, and then boom, immediate cut. The plane is in midair, and there's an upbeat song on the radio. And I'm like, you chickened out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You absolutely steadfastly refuse to take this seriously. The soundtrack in this movie is such a problem. The soundtrack is it's going full Forrest Gump, where
0: Forrest oh, it's Gump, all the, the nostalgia stuff.
1: Yeah, the movie Forrest Gump, I'm I'm specifically talking about the way that Forrest Gump, which was a film that was also about, you know, a lot of the major uh, social and political events of the mid 20th century. And it was a film mm-hmm. that was uh whether you love it or hate it, it was very specifically designed to appeal to the boomer generation. And yeah, the soundtrack is. of Forrest Gump, which was pretty much with the exception of like the the main score that like Falling Feather score that they have. Mm-hmm. Um it's almost all big pop hits from the middle of the century. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it had was a, a big two double CD album. My parents sounds, yeah. bought it. Everyone listened to it, and all of those songs in Forrest Gump and Greatest Beer Ever make the movie go down smooth. They just they just make it so that it's easy to process and easy to, to enjoy, even the toughest things, even the things uh-huh. that you shouldn't, because the movie specifically is telling you a story about how they're bad. And there's a, <sighs> me- there's a scene in the movie where, of, of Greatest Beer and Ever, where Chickie witnesses firsthand a war crime. Okay. And it, the, the war crime is, like, scored to the song Cherish, which is kind of this, like, floaty, romantic cherishes the I forget the lyrics but mm. you, if you just <laughs> if, yeah. if I hum a few bars you'll get it right uh, and A it, it it should make it more creepy but it doesn't and then later mm. in the movie that same song is used during a touching reunion as if you didn't kind of permanently change the context of it Because they're not selling the movie with these songs. The movie is selling the songs to you. The movie Uh is trying to give you these songs as kind of like a gift, as just like a palate cleanser. And it's actually just not telling the story very well at all. The Vietnam War, even the horrors that we see in the movie, is scrubbed. It is as clean a version. And I appreciate it's not going for Apocalypse Now. I get that. I know and understand we don't want this to be the most like repellent awful depiction of war you've ever seen. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. There there's there's definitely a room for different levels of severity in war cinema. I can appreciate that. But this is like Operation Dumbo Drop. This is not oh geez. doing anyone a good service here l- l- at all, anyone. And it's a damn shame mm-hmm. this movie.
0: Oh, that that's too bad. It is. Uh, uh, well, I, I I feel like um, if you're making, like, you're trying to teach, like, the horrors of war to a small child. Yeah. Uh, like, you want to be able to talk to a kid about, sort of, like, the horrors of Vietnam or the horrors of World War II. Uh, and there's a certain kind of story that can be told about the war, like, really highlights the horrors of the war and the death of the war without, mm. you know, showing people getting their limbs blown off on the battlefield without showing all uh, of
1: the gruesome details, but giving people the gist yeah. of it. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know it's gotten a lot of uh, criticism recently, but there's a, a book and it was made into a movie called the boy in the striped pajamas. I
1: didn't and see
0: that's it. about, yeah, this is a, it's about a young German boy who wanders off, uh, you know, goes out to a, a relative's house out, out where he's not used to living and he sort of goes out wandering in the yard and finds this big fence, and on the other side of the fence mm. is this boy in the striped pajamas. And the uh. two, the boy inside the concentration camp knows what's going on. The boy outside has been so sheltered that he doesn't understand what's going on. Mm. So he he just he ends up like bringing food to this kid. This uh and uh yeah, it turns out that uh the the boy on the outside of the fence is uh, the child of uh, a gentile german citizen and the boy on the inside is a jewish boy yeah. and he's in in a concentration camp uh and so this is about a really simple sta- uh story about how uh something very simple like friendship uh is easy to be had among you know among uh anybody and that friendship can be destroyed by war mm. okay when you're like 7 that's something you can handle and I'm okay with, like, that message being told in that kind of a way uh, to a child. But it sounds to me like this kind of friendship can solve our problems type of a narrative is still being used when we're talking about adult characters and, uh, and telling it to an adult audience. And at that point, it's just, it's childish and naive, Yeah, well, I mean, this isn't... Okay, two things. One,
1: I've never read nor seen The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. I've seen a lot of criticism Mm. lobbed at it that makes it sound like a knock well told story. But you're right. It is a story that is intended to try to introduce, or at least it sounds like to me, a story that's intended to try Mm -hmm. to introduce very difficult concepts to very young people who might not be able to wrap their heads around it yet, and I understand that intention, whether or not it's any good. Uh, Here, it's not about friendship solving anything. In fact, Chickie does eventually realize he... He can't do anything about it. But what it is ultimately about mm. is sort of like, hey, it's okay, Chicky. You didn't know. And that's what matters is that you, you, you're a good person and you tried to deliver those beers. And I'm like, mm. no, that is not what is important. And in <laughs> fact, this was an opportunity for Chicky to realize that he's very small. And that's something that mm-hmm. is a difficult lesson to learn. But it's something that adults have to learn. That yeah. you are not the center of the fucking universe most of your life. Probably all of it. And indeed, mm-hmm. the, the the problems of Chicky Donahue... And again, I, I don't know the man. I know he's a real person. I'm talking about it in the movie and the way he's portrayed here. The problems that Chicky Donahue don't amount to a hill of beans. He is mm-hmm. surrounded by people doing greater things. And to have all of those people... Like, you know, they might chew him out, but then they're like, Yeah, but you got a good heart, Chicky. And I'm like, Stop oh, making it about him. The whole point is that he tried to center himself.
0: Yeah. Yeah in, in, and in
1: against one of the biggest and most cataclysmic geopolitical conflicts of the twentieth century. It's at least the second half. Mm. And the movie supports that it is all about him. And it's just it's a, it's a bad tone to strike. The movie isn't particularly thoughtful or funny. All of the performances are like Zac Efron's trying. I'm going to give him a lot of credit. He's, this is clearly him he, trying to actor. like yeah, yeah. trying to break out and like do a bit more serious work. And again, I've, I it sucks because I've seen him in a couple of movies this year where he's like one of the best parts of it, but the movie stinks. He was also in Firestarter. That movie's terrible. Oh, that's right. He's yeah, good yeah. in it. Like he's fine. He's doing his job here, but his job is to be embarrassingly obtuse until way too late in the narrative.
0: Uh-huh. And that
1: just doesn't give him much to work with. So, everyone else... I mean, Russell Crowe is in this fucking movie. He plays a reporter who like rolls his eyes at Chickie Donahue. And later on, he's like, well, you gotta give it to him. I'm like, no, you don't, actually. <laughs> like, what are you, it, uh, It's all about how... Uh, I want to move on. Let's talk about mm. a movie that uh, is a little bit more... Uh, nuanced a little bit more complicated and a little bit more mm-hmm. interesting let's talk about rob zombies the monsters
0: <laughs> oh aren't I meant you all clever of that. i meant all of that uh, by the way no, it's a, it's, 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 okay. it's
1: it's actually a more interesting project in a lot of ways
0: yeah i, did, I didn't see the greatest bureau ever but uh yeah this is the latest film from 1440 entertainment which is the sub brand of universal that takes a lot of their, uh, kind of not really well-known, uh, properties that they already own and making sequels to them. Stuff like Death Race and Kindergarten Cop, uh, what else have they done? They did Did a Dragonheart. Cop and a Half half 2. Uh, Tales from the Hood 2. Hard Target 2. They did the Honey sequels. Backdraft 2. Yeah, they uh, they did some of the uh, the Tremors movies. I think those ones are pretty good. Uh, uh, they did a sequel to the the movie Doom, not Doom, yeah. but uh, Doom, based on the video game. Uh,
1: That's actually more of a reboot. I'll, uh, I, I, I did see that one. It's not right. a sequel, but regardless, they also yeah, you're the, right. They, uh, they take like Universal's IPs that are like worth hanging on to and keeping alive in the consciousness, but we don't want to spend a lot of money on it. And so they make a bunch of, a little bit more expensive than you'd think, but straight-to-video schlock, usually. And there's a few that are Mm -hmm. exceptions. There's straight-to-video child's play movies were quite good, actually. Yeah. But mostly, it's sort of like, why did we do this? And this is an interesting example where they decided to, this is how they're going to make... A Munsters movie. You know, the Munsters is a sitcom from the 1960s. It was on concurrently with the Addams Family, and it mm-hmm. got better ratings, which is interesting because nowadays it's seen mm. as the lesser film, of lesser show. Mm. Uh, whereas the Addams Family was about a bunch of rich people who look ostensibly kind of normal, but actually they're really kooky and weird and violent. Uh, the mm-hmm. Munsters was about a bunch of people who can't help but look like monsters, because he's a Frankenstein monster, his wife is a, is a vampire, their son is a werewolf, Grandpa is Dracula, and they stick out like a sore thumb in yeah. suburbia. So it's about uh, sort of a, a culture clash. And actually, my partner in yeah. Lopez de Silver wrote a pretty good, uh, not pretty good, a really good Twitter thread actually, uh, where they talked about how uh, the Munsters was actually very much about the immigrant experience. There's that one family on the block whose house doesn't look like everyone's else, and they don't dress like oh there you ones. go. Yeah. it's about white people sort of responding to the not. Suburban white image of America In their neighborhood And then sort of yeah. be like oh I don't know that They are not as white as us And so the monsters is <laughs> kind of a comical Horror version of trying to Explore that which is an interesting uh, uh, yeah. th- That doesn't get Talked about enough so I thought
0: that was kind no, of that, 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 That's an interesting interpretation uh, Yeah the the joke of the monsters is That uh, because they look like monsters People would scream when they're In ordinary situations it's just the yeah. juxtaposition Of having uh Bland white suburban America populated by universal monsters. Um, yeah, Rob but Zombie, the monsters are very nice people. Yeah, and Rob Zombie famously said of uh, of and Rob Zombie's a huge monsters fan. He's on record with it. He's done commentary tracks for Monster Go Home. He's hosted monsters marathons on on cable stations. He he, he is like just deeply in love with the monsters. Uh, it's it's entirely possible that. Uh, 1440 said, hey, we're doing a Munsters project and Rob Zombie bugged them. It's like, hey, I I really need to be in on this. Uh, But he said once that it was... The uh, the Munsters are ordinary people who look like monsters, whereas the Adams family are monsters who look like ordinary people. Basically, uh, and yeah. I, I, I thought that was a pretty good, uh, pretty good descriptor. And I've yeah. I've always been more fond of the Adams family. The only way the Munsters is superior is its theme song, which is one of the best ever. But here's the thing: uh, the Addams family sort of,
1: still is a good theme song.
0: It, it, it's, it's, not like, it's not
1: like night and day. It's the, it's like yeah. night and dusk, like. One is, <laughs> I, I'm not going to fight you. I'd say the Munsters have the, arguably have the better theme song. But yeah. I'm just let's be fair. The Addams Family still has an iconic theme song on their
0: own. Yeah. The other thing I think um, that we don't
1: talk about enough about the Munsters and the Addams Family, just to keep this sort of comparison alive for a second, is that the Munsters are working class, whereas the Addams Family are old money.
0: That's true. And so the, yeah, yeah. the
1: Addams Family get to use money. People have to deal with the Addams Family and, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, give them deference and just sort of like, Oh, whatever you say, I don't say it. I'm like, because they're rich. Whereas mm-hmm. the monsters are completely working class. They have regular day jobs. They they're, they're, they're much more of a honeymooners kind of family. Uh, yeah. and as a result, their problems are not as easily solved and people have no particular reason, uh, like you know, from that class perspective, to just sort of like shrug and say, well, what can we do? They're rich. Like there, there's a different sort of, uh, dynamic they have with the people. Yeah.
0: Around them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like, uh, Rob Zombie was, it's really re- weird that Rob Zombie of all people who tends to make movies about sort of outsider criminals and, you know, and you know, freaks and weirdos, mm. uh, would gravitate toward the Munsters when I feel like his sensibility is much more with the Adams family and Mm. what he does with his Munsters movie is actually uh, until the very end removes the whole suburbia aspect from it. This is kind of a Munsters origin story. Uh, uh, Sherry Moon zombie plays Lily, uh, and she is really, and she's, uh, she's lonely. She's longing for love. Mm. And, uh, she lives with her father, uh, who is, uh, he's just called the count in the movie and the TV series is known as grandpa Monster. Uh, he's played by Daniel Roebuck. He's really good. Uh, and, uh, meanwhile, working out on the fringes of town is Dr. Wolfgang. Uh, was it Wolfgang von Orlacher? No, it's, um,
1: no, no, no. It's, um, <sighs> He, Hold on, I'm going to look it up just yeah, so we got it. It's definitely Dr. Dr. Henry
0: Henry, Henry Augustus Wolfgang, is his name. I just okay. looked it up. Uh, yeah, he's like a, a Frankenstein type. He's got an Igor, and he wants to make a Frankenstein monster, and does. And uh, his Igor character, played by uh, Sylvester McCoy. Uh, no, 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 no no, just,
1: no, 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 no. Igor is played by Sylvester McCoy, but that is the Count's assistant. Dr. Oh, Jorge's you're right. I'm, assistant is Floop. He's played by Jorge Garcia from Lost.
0: Okay, I I I the easy, I, I mixed easy up, mistake to make. Easy, they, they're up, both
1: similar I, characters in the film. Like, I get why you yeah. mess, and they're, I, and they're both under the a lot of names. So yeah, makeup I, makeup
0: I, makeup. I mixed up Igor with the, the Igor type character, exactly. uh, but Floop, excuse me, is the one who decides to name him Herman Munster, so that this this monster springs to life. Classic Frankenstein look. Deep green skin, big flat head, uh, just like uh, Fred Gwynn did in the original series. He wears a lot of, like, padding and risers to make him look even larger. And uh, he uh, quickly has a showbiz career. Yeah, because uh, and like, when... a, like
1: in Young Frankenstein, uh, Floop got confused and messed up, and instead of getting the genius brain, he ended up taking the brain of a hack comedian, and that's, that's why Herman right. Munster makes terrible jokes all the time. And he mm. immediately goes into show business. He doesn't just tell bad jokes, he tells bad jokes in a rock band. And by the yeah, way, this which, whole opening is taking place in Transylvania where uh, monster stuff is very normal.
0: It, everyone's yeah, everyone's just a monster. They know, just the a monster the so,
1: they know robots. They're, this is all just the way things are over there. Mm.
0: So Herman uh, is
1: able to like become very popular very quickly.
0: Mm. I... I love all the Transylvania, all of like the stupid kooky Monster stuff in the background. Yeah, uh, like Lily Munster's brother is a Wolfman. Uh, uh, Lily Munster goes out on a date early in the movie with Count Orlock Nos- from Nosferatu, also played by Richard Brake, incidentally. Uh, yeah. uh, there's a scene later on when uh, Herman and Lily get married, and the officiant of their wedding is just a robot. Just a, <laughs> th- th- like it's th- there's and it's like a, a co- like comedic. 1950s tin can kind of robot with a little flapping jaw uh voiced by butch
1: patrick by the way
0: yeah that's right who who played eddie munster in the original series uh all all of those like and uh, i i remember reading an interview with rob zombie about this and he wanted to shoot it in black and white like the series was and the studio said no you can't shoot a black and white movie we want a color movie so he says okay i'm gonna make this as garish as i fucking can and so he has thrown gre- like bright green light on everything. He's made mm-hmm. everything really neon and super garish. So it actually has kind of this weird kind of uh, like funhouse aesthetic to it, which,
1: it. It's like he wanted what? the starkness and surreality, like the unreality of black and white. And when he couldn't get that, he tried to approximate that with color. And I can
0: respect that. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, I, uh, and yeah, I, I actually kind of like the, the, this weird sort of cheap look of this movie, because I'm, I'm, I was thinking back to watching cheapy old B movies, you know, that I would rent from a video store and how a lot of those cheap movies looked and sound sounded kind of bad. Like the sound wasn't great. Sometimes like people would walk into a room and you'd hear their footsteps over the dialogue. Uh, you know, sometimes the lighting wasn't always great. And I'm thinking, like, what's the modern version of that? And that's kind of something like this, where, like, the digital photography is really crisp, but we don't have the sort of the resources to really overstuff the frame anymore. We have to be kind of resourceful. So Rob Zombie is doing his best to throw a lot of light on stuff, do a lot of sort of interesting edits, do a lot of interesting monster makeup. Yeah, Uh, it's interesting. I've actually I've seen a lot of people like
1: complain about the aesthetic of this. And granted, mm-hmm. the trailer didn't look great, but the trailer exists in a vacuum. I, I actually like the aesthetic of this movie. I think it's fun, and I think it's actually every. It's something Rob Zombie's been doing from the beginning. Rob Zombie has an enormous appreciation for schlock, for low yeah, budget yeah. monster nonsense. He he uses. The robot from the Phantom Creeps from like nineteen thirty nine, with like Bella Lugosi, it was a serial about a mad scientist, and he's got this really goofy looking robot. Like, there's a reason this robot is, and this isn't Robbie the Robot. This is like a robot. Are like really? And he just brings that sucker out on stage in concerts. He loves that thing. <laughs> he unapologetically That's appreciates a... Schlock, and mm. I find it really weird that we celebrate Rob Zombie when he approximates the aesthetic. Of old Schlock, uh-huh. when he's doing like uh, the Devil's Rejects or something, and he's like bringing in that like nineteen seventies grindhouse Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibe, uh-huh. we celebrate him for that. But when he but when he approximates the m- modern version of that, when he says I'm going to make this thing look like Big Bad Beetleborgs, hell, you know what it's got the aesthetic of is the larger budgeted porn parodies.
0: Yeah, yeah. That they, yeah, that, that they like,
1: made in the last 20 years. I, I, uh, like, I, 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 do for like, the Avengers or whatever. And
0: yeah, I, I agree, and I wanted to point out that that's descriptive and not not necessarily a criticism.
1: No, he, he's clearly, like, I mean, he, again, he's working on a budget, and I think there's something... I think he gets a lot out of that budget. It's it's mm. naive and sort of approach, but it's the monsters it's supposed to. Like, I, I respect that he dove in and didn't try to pretend this was something that it's not. And said, "I'm going to use the aesthetics of modern day schlock—the stuff that, like, okay, you appreciate it when I put it in *The Devil's Rejects* now, but you didn't. People didn't necessarily appreciate it at the time." Mm-hmm. And he's doing that now. I think that works. I actually think it's—I again, it's a—it's a, it's a silly-looking movie, mm-hmm. but I think he knows exactly what he's doing, and I think the look of the movie is actually really fun. My problem yeah. with this movie—I have two problems <laughs> with this movie. The okay. biggest problem is something that it just you can't really surmount in a comedy, and it, this is all subjective and your mileage might vary. But I, I just didn't think it was very funny. Like there's a couple oh, of good, okay. I got a couple of really good guffaws, uh-huh. but like for the most part, I'm mildly charmed. Like mm-hmm. I think it's like this is perfectly like oh like I, I I don't dislike this really, but I'm not laughing at it, and I think that's a problem.
0: Uh, okay. Uh, so I think
1: that that's something I can't really do anything about. The other thing is and I appreciate that he just wants to hang out with the monsters. That's that's his vibe here. But uh-huh. I think by keeping them in Transylvania, they do the suburbia thing, but it's the last act of the movie. They can and the movie's long by the way. The movie's like pushing 2 hours. I don't know why it had to be that. But Yeah. Um he keeps the fundamental premise, the contradiction, the juxtaposition of the monsters with people who are not the monsters, away for so long that you kind of miss the point. and the when we finally do get to suburbia, and there's a couple of funny little bits, like they show up on Halloween and they see everyone dressed up and they think, "Oh cool, everyone's like us, and we, we see where this is going." That's kind of cute but where it all ends up without going into like detail and not that it's really spoilery but why ruin the last thing that happens in the movie it Mm. doesn't get us to the start of the monsters it actually changes the fundamental premise of the monsters in a weird way and I think he likes the characters and I don't think he's very interested in them being in suburbia at all Mm. which I guess is his prerogative but I think when you remove that you see that the monsters without that is actually just a bunch of cute people in monster costumes being cute and that's not terrible but it's also not interesting enough to carry a feature for me Uh so I I, want to like this a lot I really really do and there's a lot I appreciate about it and I think some people are being harsh on this movie to to an unnecessary degree but for me I think the plot doesn't the The idea of the plot is fine. The, the pacing and the structure is way off, and I just didn't laugh. So yeah, I uh, can't really like this movie as much as I really want to. But I also don't think it's a complete wash, and I think it's an interesting film.
0: Yeah, I I, I actually agree with you on on the pacing and the plot. I, it, it, this is this is an eighty minute movie that they stretched out to one hundred and ten minutes. They, there's so much. It doesn't need to be that long. I, and I do think that the final it's not even the whole, the final act it's the second half of the final act where they're in yeah. suburbia is that like that that's fodder for the sequel you save that for the next movie uh yeah. so yeah there's there's a lot of extra stuff in this but i actually uh when it comes to mileage may varying i actually did laugh uh there's a lot of stuff in this movie that really ...just made me giggle like I was eight again. Uh, The idea of seeing, like, they're going out... uh, ...Herman and Lily are going out and uh, having... ...on dates and meeting other monster celebrities... ...and they spend an evening uh, with the creature from the Black Lagoon. It's a guy in a rubber mask, and in order to uh, show that he's, like, a sophisticated adult now... ...they put a fedora... On him, and just the the sight of the creature from the Black Lagoon wearing a fedora kind of made me giggle a little bit. Uh, it's cute. The, the, I just didn't laugh. Yeah. I didn't
1: think that was enough to get. It wasn't enough to make the, me uh, actually go.
0: Ha-ha! I was like, oh, that's cute. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the dumb puns during the punk act, punk acts. Like I've mm-hmm. seen punk acts like that, so that feels like actually weirdly authentic. And when they go backstage and talk to the monster band, and they're just like these skeleton guys. It's like, hey, how you guys doing? Like. just... Little, little tiny cheapy details like that did make me giggle a little bit i know that uh rob zombie has a big fondness for like that rubber mask aesthetic uh, yeah. and uh he has long understood that a psychopath who thinks they're scary by putting on a rubber mask is scarier than an actual monster with a convincing mask mm-hmm. like uh, i think he's he understands that a, a a killer trying to make themselves look scary is going to be a lot more intimidating. I think that's like, he's adopting something really similar here. It's, it's funnier when it's people who look like they're in masks than it actually yeah. being monsters. So like, he's like, no. he's rolling with that cheapness. Yeah. Uh, if it, if it and, looks
1: like really expensive, it would mm, just look really expensive. And here you're like, it, it it's quaint. Yeah. The, the cheapness is actually, is part of it, yeah. it's
0: actually enhancing a movie like, like enhancing a script like this. Uh, and something that really pushes it over the line for me though, is the cast. Uh, I, I feel like, uh, we didn't even mention his name yet, but, uh, uh, maybe you said it, Jeff Daniel Phillips, who plays Herman Munster. Uh, I
1: wanted to get to him. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, Jeff Daniel Phillips, Daniel Roebuck and Sherry Moon Zombie are completely committed they understand that this is silly, and they're going to sell it as best they can. They never look embarrassed. They never wink at the mm. camera. They are there to play these parts, and I feel like they're they're all doing a really great job. Uh, also, we have Richard Brake in here, and we need to pause for Richard Brake, because mm. he, he is a goddamn treasure, Richard Brake. Mm. Uh, I've seen him in, in a lot of different movies. He's played a lot of different kinds of, of characters. Mm. I, mostly I've seen him in horror movies. Yeah. you Probably mainstream. He was in an episode
1: of The Mandalorian where apparently okay. he got some attention. I actually didn't see that episode. He was also in Batman Begins. He was the guy who killed Batman's parents.
0: That's right. Yeah. Uh, but was um, it uh, Joe, in, Joe in, in, Chill? In, in, horror yeah. in horror movies
1: he gets to play the main bad guys a lot. Yeah. Uh, uh, I... He was in Rob Zombie's 31 and he's Great and super terrifying in that movie. Yeah. The he movie, was in the Three movie kind of stinks, Hell, but he's in it. That uh, movie, yeah. He's not good, but he's good in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's he amazing, in... and he's making like. Every once in a while, like, we get like a new horror actor who, like, really seems to focus on the genre, but is always the standout in it. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of the people from the 80s uh, who did that are. Seen, rightly so, as legends of the field. People like Bruce Campbell or Jeffrey Combs or Tony mm. Todd. Uh, and Richard Brake is one of those now yeah, for me. Yeah. He's always amazing in everything. But yeah, I actually agree. I think Jeff Daniel Phillips in particular. I think Daniel Robach and Sherry Moon Zombie are doing the characters from the show. And they're doing an admirable job. I think mm. Jeff Daniel Phillips actually brings
0: new dimensions
1: to Herman Munster. I actually think he makes that part his own. Like, I don't Fred Gwynn is a legend. Don't get me wrong, but
0: uh uh-huh. but he's not playing Fred Gwynn. He's doing his own thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's
1: playing the. Yeah, I, I feel like Sherry Moon Zombie and Daniel Robach, to some extent are playing not just the characters but the actors who played them before. I feel like Jeff Daniel Phillips is making Herman Munster his own, and it's very Herman Munster. He does all the jokes. He's just as awkward, but it's because he's like kind of younger. And, Mm -hmm. like, got more to prove, and he's a bit more, like, the cool teenager, almost, that, like, you know, is, like, the guy in the leather jacket who picks up your daughter for prom, and you, like, go, like, ah, curse that young man, that kind of thing. (laughs) But he's got a good heart. Uh Like, that's his vibe, and it really works. He's actually pretty funny. Um, He's kind of a little romantic. He's actually got really good comedic timing. He's the breakout star of this. He's... He's been in a bunch of zombie stuff, too, but, like, mm-hmm. he's a good Herman
0: monster. Yeah, he, he's just a, he's a really funny guy. Like, he understands how to tell a dumb joke that makes it sound like a funny joke. I mean, you might not laugh at it, but he it's not... Uh, it, mm. It's just because it's tired material. I think he's actually doing a really good job with it. Uh, I looked him up. I... Uh, First of all, he was in Sneakers, which is one of our favorite movies. He was what? one of the he was one of the guards at the toy building. No. <laughs> it's just one of the, one of the security guards. Uh, that was like he, his second movie. Oh my god, that's crazy! Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. That's hilarious. And uh, a lot of people, I mean, it was it was a terrible idea. Um, oh. when they made a, a TV show called Cavemen. Which was based on a Geico ad campaign where, uh, you know, cave, even cavemen can figure out our insurance, and they, uh, you know, hired some actors and put them in heavy makeup, and they're, you know, then they're cavemen, and they decided to make that into a sitcom. It didn't last very long. We haven't reviewed it on Cancel Too Soon yet, but I'm sure we'll get to it eventually. It's
1: it's one of those shows that people bring up a lot, and we tend to save those shows for like big event episodes, like a 250th or something. Yeah. Nick Kroll was in that show.
0: <laughs> Nick so
1: fucking cruel, yeah,
0: but yeah Jeff Daniel Phillips, I think he he was he was one of the Geico Cavemen so yep. he he's got uh that that is unfortunately considered a blot, but as far as I'm concerned, everything's forgiven because he is so funny in this, <laughs> you know, and he's doing the punk rock thing, and he's doing the romantic yeah. thing, he's doing all the uh, yeah really, really funny. Uh, there's also a couple of fun cameos because Rob Zombie likes to cast all of his like horror convention buddies. So you have, uh, he was able to get, uh, Dee Wallace in this movie. He was able to get, uh, Cassandra Peterson in this movie, which is really cool. Uh,
1: AKA Elvira.
0: if you Elvira. Know yeah. yeah. And yeah, she plays, uh, the real estate agent who sells them the, the house at 1313 Mockingbird Lane. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I. I Again, I agree, I think the plot meanders too much. I think all of the stuff with the actual Munsters sitcom in Suburbia could have waited for another movie. But, yeah, I, I was sort of drawn in by the cheap dumbness of this film. I was actually kind of excited by the, the weird, cheap, green aesthetic of everything. It's not a wash.
1: Well, say what you will about this movie. It mm. doesn't look like every other movie. It doesn't feel like every other movie. Mm. It's not just like trying to do what everyone else is doing and you know if you don't like it that's cool I get it it's not for everybody but that's true for Rob Zombie's whole shtick isn't it mm. like he's playing to people who like I mean look at the monsters in fact this very movie is the kind of movie that like characters in Rob Zombie movies watch Yeah, like you'll actually see like the Firefly family the, the Firefly family mm. in like Th- House of a Thousand Corpses and you'll see them watching this stuff <laughs> right. and like he's he's got an affection for it he knows some people do and he is not making it for everybody man mm. he is not trying to reach everybody he's trying to reach just enough weird kooks that they'll get let him do another one and yeah. uh listen i'm not a huge fan of how it turned out but the pieces are good and i think there's definitely like he he's he's got something here that i would be amused hopefully he could do it even better the next time
0: that would be cool for me yeah yeah and i feel like um I also feel like this is one of those movies that everyone's sort of scoffing at now but is is going to be talked about fondly in like a few years' time. Like the people who saw it, oh yeah, that was a good one. This, because p- there, more people, there people need to discover who see that kind of... this movie
1: now just because it's new even though it's clearly not their interest and they're going to not going to talk about it again after a while. The people who for whom this is their jam, they're going to keep talking about it. Yeah. And then it's yeah. just become a little cult thing and that's how it works. Um, so yeah. Uh, there's another cult film, actually, that has a follow-up... Uh, this week, uh, this is Disney's Hocus Pocus finally got a sequel.
0: Uh, uh, ho- fi- I mean, you, you say finally, but ha- have people been asking for a sequel? What, yes, what was... I haven't seen actually. Yes, okay, because I hadn't I seen the ho- the original Hocus Pocus, so I didn't know if there was any like unanswered questions or promise of, of a. It's sequel It's not about
1: unanswered questions; it's just about liking it and wanting more. Um, oh, okay. So H- Hocus Pocus was a film that came out in the early 1990s. Uh, it was a Halloween movie that was released in the middle of the summer, so it didn't do great. Uh, but uh, it was a fun little premise. It was uh, about uh, three witches, the Sanderson sisters, played by Bette Midler, Kathy Najimi, and Sarah Jessica Parker, which, by the way, chef's kiss, mwah, great casting. <laughs> uh, they are evil. They are living in the colonial times, and they're eating children, or like, you know, magically, you know, like, you know, like, all like with knife and fork but like mm-hmm. they're they're like eating the souls of children in order to stay young and beautiful the people rebel they are burned at the stake and they but they vow that they will return and if uh, only someone and it, it's it's almost an absurd number of things that need to happen like uh in earnest scared stupid there's a joke about how the number of things you would have to do in order to raise the troll from the evil tree are so absurd you would only do them ironically to show how ridiculous it is and that's exactly what Ernest does in hocus pocus you have to light this magic candle on halloween while there's a full moon and you have to be a virgin which the movie makes a really big plot point in a Disney family film in the '90s, and you would never do that now.
0: Uh, about like, the, the character being a virgin?
1: Yeah, like they're they're in high school. Of course they are. Like, what are you talking about? Why is this even a plot point? It's absurd. So, but regardless, they made a whole thing, and he's embarrassed by it. I'm like, dude, you're dude, you're in high school.
0: I I know that. I remember there was a joke about that in uh, in the film The Monster Squad. Yeah, which is uh, a film like, I, I have we, seen. Ha- are we
1: going to find a virgin? You're all virgins.
0: Yeah, well, every single
1: and, one in this room is a virgin. I
0: well, don't the, there know was what a.
1: Talking
0: about. Well, and there was um, a acute, acute bits like, oh, she's a virgin, and it's like the, she does the spell and it doesn't work, but because uh, she she is sexually active, and like her excuse is like, oh, well, I mean, Kevin didn't count, like it, it was like a yeah. kind of a cute little personal moment. They yeah, they, they yeah, at but least but try to make a joke film. about that's it. A yeah, I guess uh, so. Anyway,
1: so the, the, the Sanderson sisters were resurrected, and they have to try to cast a spell before the end of Halloween night, or they would not be able to roam free. And they wreak a lot of havoc. They do a big musical number, because it's Bette Midler, and it's very camp, and it's perfectly likable. Uh, it's one of Doug Jones' earlier roles, where uh, he played a zombie who oh fun. was the... Uh, Bet Midler was in love with him, but he was actually more into Sarah Jessica Parker, but Bet Midler can't admit that. And he's resurrected, and it's a good early Doug Jones role. Um, <laughs> Hocus Pocus 1 is a perfectly cute Halloween slumber party movie. Okay, I was never quite as big on it as everyone else was. I think I was, like... If I was, like, three years younger, it probably would have hit me at exactly the right time for it to become my whole personality. Yeah. But i like it a lot it's a nice movie it's mostly works there's a lot of good stuff in it uh and i understand why you'd want to see more and it really is mostly just the protagonist pfft, no one cares you want to see more of the sanderson sisters you want bett midler and jamie and sarah jessica parker back being funny vain monstrous unapologetically villains they, they don't like get redeemed or anything they're just bad guys Okay. But they're but they're a little but they're not particularly bright, so it's easy to fool them and they get charmingly befuddled by the present day and they're fond of musical numbers. And so it's hard not to like them. The movie wasn't a big hit, but when it came out on home video and when it started airing on TV in the Disney Channel, people started watching it all the time and it became kind of a perennial and then by the late 90s early 2000s it was one of those, "Hey, we all kind of like this, don't we?" <laughs> kind of movies we can yeah, We yeah, kind yeah. of like this movie. And then by I think the early 2010s, it was properly at least a Halloween time classic.
0: Yeah, yeah. Fans. I, I um, just last year I went to a, a hotel in San Diego, and they were having one of those movie nights. And yeah, it was it was one of the uh, one of the movies that they were going to show at around Halloween time. It, it's just sort of made its way into the nostalgia based uh, version of the the midnight circuit.
1: Yeah, it's a perennial, and again, especially for the time of year. It's like watching Christmas Story at Christmas. Yeah. It's just a thing. Yeah, um, so yeah, it And, took and I haven't seen and it. Ben so. has been trying to get this thing made for a while, actually. She's been a big booster. Because um, she liked the role and she thought it was fun. So they finally put together a new one. It's directed by Ann Fletcher, who did the original Step Up. Yay! Oh, okay. Uh, uh, and um, <laughs> it's, it's basically more of the same. Um, oh, it's, it's, it's decades after the Sanderson sisters came back. Um, they're a little hazy about it but the implication is that their return in the 90s has become a bit of the lore and that there's a scene in the movie and, and kudos for this movie for acknowledging Hocus Pocus's queer audience Which is not something Disney was necessarily Going to do okay. uh, There are drag queens uh, dressed up as the Sanderson Sisters for Halloween There's a big Sanderson Sisters like costume party mm-hmm. That's acknowledged There's a cute bit where it's easy to cut out unfortunately Which pisses me off but like there's a cute bit Where like one of the Sanderson sisters flies past uh, A window and you see Like a handsome gay couple Watching Hocus Pocus on television And the implication is that the events were turned into a movie, and that's the movie we saw. Hocus Pocus. Uh, fine. Oh, I'm fine. With okay, it.
0: that, that's fine. That's uh, I've, I've it, seen, It's a little self-serving, but it's fine. Uh, I've seen. I've seen worse gags.
1: Yeah. Uh, they. They. There's a group of teenage girls who, uh, they get what they think is like a replica candle from a from a magic store. Turns out it's the real thing. They light it in the middle of the woods. The Sanderson sisters come back, uh, and uh, yeah, they run amok they do witchy things there's a cute bit where they do I forget what they sing this time, they do a big musical number in front of the whole town, but they do it to bewitch them and one of the things that they need in order to survive this time, they want to perform a spell that will make them the most powerful witches there ever were, and then no one will ever be able to screw with them ever again Okay. but in order to do that they need a few particular items and one of which is the blood of their enemy and they had an enemy in Salem hundreds of years ago and he is a descendant now he was a real big jerk in the past he was like the town priest and he was all super the Sanderson sisters are evil that kind of thing but uh-huh. in, in the present day he's actually very sweet and funny and he really likes Halloween and all he wants is a candied apple which is kind of cute um, <laughs> and of course events transpire so that he never gets one and that's very cute um so we don't want he's not a villain but he's got the blood of their enemy so it's fine um so they got it so they bewitch the whole town and the whole town does a big kind of thrillery dance number and then they dance off into the night as one to try to find the guy and the sanderson sisters are just like well they're following our orders but they're dancing so it's really slow <laughs> this is very annoying, and it's not going to help at all. And we should just leave now. And I kind of—it's—it's it's funny. It calls attention to the gag. Mm. Um, once again, the the main kids uh, who are the leads—they're fine. It's not their movie. It's Bette Midler, Kathy Najimi, and Sarah Jessica Parker's movies. And you know what? They ain't lost a step.
0: Well, good for they're, them. They're,
1: they're, they fall right back into it. Super duper cute. Uh, I don't know what. Kathy Jimmy's direction ever was for her character, but it's super weird and she's hilarious. There's a bit, there's a really frustrating bit that's just total corporate pandering where they they said, Ah, we're going to eat you so we can be young again. And the teen girls are just like, Well, you don't need to eat us and make a potion out of us. You could just get cosmetics now. Take us to your apothecary. <laughs> and we go to Walgreens. We get way too much of a Walgreens sign. But the, um, the joke is they go to a Walgreens and they're like, ah, yes. Let's, 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 oh, look, the face of a child. And they pull out a face mask and then they eat it. And it's like, it's funny. It's not amazing. Uh, linger on it I, long, but it's funny.
0: I, I don't know hey. that you're describing it. It sounds like, because I, I, I've seen it in movies before where they try to save money by shooting in like a really mundane commercial location. Like a, I was right at the... Way too much of the new Ghostbusters movie took place in a Walmart. Exactly, uh, yeah. and it's also yeah. it's
1: also you know corporate time for Walmart, so that well, uh, doesn't yeah. hurt the production any. Um, so it's in there, but it it makes sense. It just linger on it too long. And there's a cute bit where um, they need to uh, they need to like the, the the children flee, so they need to fly after the children, and Bette Midler grabs a broom, but it's the last broom they have, and so um, I think it's uh, like a
0: push broom or something.
1: Well, I I, th- I think Sarah Jessica Parker ends up getting like a carpet shampooer, which is kind of funny. But okay. uh, Kathy Najimy ends up with two Roombas and she's just like got them <laughs> strapped to her feet and it's actually really funny.
0: Okay. Um
1: it's 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 lo fi. Like it's it it's got it the original film wasn't super expensive, but it had, you know, a feature film aesthetic. It didn't feel cheap. Okay. This feels a little cheap, unfortunately. This has uh. the feel of you know, made-for-Disney Channel movie. They didn't have no money, but they clearly weren't throwing money at it. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure most of it went to the salaries of the Sanderson sisters, and again, fair enough. Um, But they do a lot with it. It's a very, very charming film. I laughed quite a bit. There's a really funny bully character, actually, uh, who he... uh, The two of the girls are annoyed because one of the girls that they've been friends with for, for years has a boyfriend and doesn't hang out with him anymore. And their boyfriend's kind of a dick. And will do things like oh you're doing witch stuff that's weird and they're like all mad and offended hmm. later on in the in the thing they actually finally sit down and talk to him and it's just like no i don't think that's bad i just think it's weird and so i i, I told you to your face and they're like yeah that's rude and bullying and he's like it is
0: <laughs>
1: i thought i was making conversation I have so many people to apologize to. Like, he's really just didn't realize all the people he'd been Aww. hurting. And he kind of <laughs> felt bad for him for a second. Like, it's, it's weird that they made that character something <laughs> when they really didn't have to. Um, so there's some cute stuff here. It's not as... It doesn't have the great spooky vibes that mm-hmm. the original did the original actually feels like a halloween movie for kids It wasn't afraid to be a little bit more scary than this yeah not scary scary but you know have some creepy stuff uh-huh. um, here even though the dead rise and whatever like that it all feels a lot safer and more sanitary but it's a delivery system for bett midler kathy Jamie, and sarah Jessica parker they're really really funny um, I actually appreciated that they managed to get through the whole movie and the whole point is to bring the Sanderson sisters back and they never try to make them the good guys or like have them really see the error of their ways. They're allowed to be villains. But we do have a little bit more, there's a little bit more backstory with them and we do flesh them out a little bit better as characters and so that we understand that while they are evil, Mm-hmm. They do have at least one admirable quality, and that's that even though they bicker, they do love each other. And okay. I think that's a nice compromise. You know, we got them back. We want to hang out with them. We don't want to hate them. But we also don't want to ruin the thing that made them great in the first place, which was that they were unapologetically villains.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think they do a pretty good job. It's it's a little too cheap for its own good, but it and it's a little repetitive. It's mostly just we're doing it again. Okay. But I, I laughed the 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 Sanders sisters are great it's a good it's a good return so yeah it's it's a, it's pretty solid it's i don't think it's going to be anyone's favorite hocus pocus but it's a nice little return and they could have done a lot worse
0: okay yeah i I'm, i i regret that i missed this one i was eager to watch it without having seen the original uh, i i i'm a big proponent of the notion that sequels should be able to stand as movies on their own and not just sort of bank on the nostalgia because otherwise you're just making a movie for only for the people who have seen the previous movie. I think a, a movie should should function by itself. Uh, but sadly, I didn't get around to it. So I still have not seen Hocus Pocus or Hocus Pocus 2. They're, they're just <laughs> b- big... Some would say those are big holes in my education. So I apologize for that.
1: Bummer. Uh, so, but uh, uh, the good news is... Mm-hmm. None of the movies that we've reviewed so far, even the ones I didn't
0: like... <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> ...were as
1: bad as the last movie we're reviewing, because we're about to talk about a movie that is not just bad. It's kind of reprehensible. It,
0: um, it, it just, it whiffs its very concept. And, um, and it's just a litany of cruelty and like almost in a Lars von Trier kind of a way where we we just get to see. Lars von
1: Trier would have had a point with me.
0: Uh, well, uh, that's a good point. Um, this is uh, this is blonde. This is a. Uh, uh, it's by Andrew Dominic, who's a filmmaker. I'm actually I've never seen any of their movies before. I haven't seen Mindhunter. Oh. I haven't seen Killing Them Softly. I haven't seen uh, Assassination of Jesse James. I started to watch Chopper back in the day, and I never finished it. So uh, oh, I didn't even
1: realize that one was him. I've seen the Assassination of Jesse James. Uh, the movie is okay. It's shot amazingly. Okay. Yeah, it's it was, a, um, one of the best-looking movies around. It's a great-looking film, but like yeah, yeah, it was, it's just it was uh, of, Roger Deakins. It's the olden part, times, part that and that long, we're going to yeah. take a long time to do it because we watched a lot of Terrence Malick movies. <laughs> uh, but there's good stuff there. It's not bad. It's All just right. you know,
0: um, yeah. This so Andrew. Dom- this is my first Andrew Dominic movie. Um, it's a black and white film. Uh, it was mostly mostly some of it's in color. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is not so much a like a biography of. Uh, Marilyn Monroe and there's a small relief that can be had in the fact that you're not going to be sort of walked through the usual tropes and there have been a lot of biographies of Marilyn Monroe in the past I saw one called uh, Norma Jean in Marilyn it was a TV movie from the 90s where the conceit of that movie was uh, Marilyn Monroe was a different person from Norma Jean and that's actually something they play with a lot in a lot of different uh, Marilyn Monroe uh, biopics so they yeah, got it's two like, different it's actresses like it's a
1: persona it's a stage name sure but in that mm-hmm. movie it's like literal different personality
0: yeah uh in fact um Ashley Judd played the quote Norma Jean character and Mira Sorvino played the the Marilyn Monroe character like they and the two characters would sort of converse and uh when she became Marilyn all of a sudden Norma Jean became like this sort of like judgy part of herself and a myth began to emerge through a lot of these bio- biographies and a lot of facts about Marilyn Monroe's life. That uh, her myth was that she suffered in, in almost this biblical sort of way, like she she star- And so all of a sudden, um, like I, I want to compare this film a little bit to Elvis, the Baz Luhrmann movie, because that's also not a straightforward biopic. It's more about trying to jazz up the myth of Elvis and sort of what he did. And that that's actually kind of like a fun, really energetic, cartoonish kind of a movie. You can kind of see what Baz Luhrmann was doing with that. Here, I, I but I also want to compare Blonde to The Passion of the Christ. Because what we're doing is taking a lot of really familiar tropes about Marilyn Monroe and kind of going through these really painful motions of watching her be just repeatedly tortured throughout this movie Uh,
1: psychologically, physically, sexually vividly uh... in all those instances they really want the audience to be vividly living out and it's worth noting here that we see all these horrible moments and we see almost no positive moments
0: No, there's there's...
1: nothing, almost nothing in this movie is something that anyone, whether you're Marilyn Monroe, Norma Jean, or, or just a a person Mm -hmm. would say to yourself, that sounds fun. Like, no, it's all hell. It's all miserable. Uh, Every human connection falls apart. It's just a nightmare.
0: There's yeah. And they're trying to make it seem all really abstract because, uh, uh, Anna de Armas plays Marilyn Monroe, but they she only ever goes by Norma Jean, which I, from what I understand is is factual. I think she went by Norma Jean with her friends. Uh the only good moments are when she is teetering on entering into a throuple with uh who is it? It's uh Cass Chaplin. Oh, Chaplin
1: Jr. and Edward G. Robinson. And Edward G.
0: Robinson. yeah. So it's uh Cass and Eddie, and they're like very bohemian and very free about their bodies and uh, they're all just very sexual people. So there's a lot of actually really bright scenes where the three of them are just sort of getting down and having a good time. It's the only time when uh, Marilyn seems to be enjoying herself in any of this. Uh, mm. and But then, you know, we get to see her go to an audition and she is assaulted in the office. And that's that goes back, we go back to that a couple times. There's a lot of flashbacks to her childhood and how her mother, played by Julianne Nicholson, uh, is was mentally ill and just repeatedly abused her, and entered into her mind this myth that her uh, her father, who uh, we only ever see him in uh, a portrait, like left them behind. But sh- uh, young Norma Jean has it in her mind that her father will return one day, and so he becomes this kind of super ego in her life. Like she does every sh- everything she can to please her absent father, which is like the laziest kind of stupid freudian symbolism like it's just da- really it's just daddy issues that's all we're dealing with here because there's mm-hmm. not much there's not they're not going into any more depth about Marilyn they're not really delving into her psychology they're just saying she was a tortured soul and she was tortured by all the people around her we should feel bad for her it's like why don't we do a little bit of credit to Marilyn the person and yeah. like maybe Show that she was this intelligent, multifaceted, talented actress, rather than just someone who was repeatedly abused. And Ana de Armas is committed to this part, but I feel like she's going through something that, like, like a Lars von Trier character would, where she is just completely mistreated by all the people around her. And she, there, I don't think there's a single scene where she's not crying in this movie. There's just this, about yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, you know, you, yeah. It, it, sorry. I'll let you go. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll just wrap wrap up a little bit. But yeah, the fact that they're not even bothering to give uh, Marilyn Monroe just sort of basic humanity turns this into uh, a torture show. It turns it into like this this, yeah. this this sick horror movie where we're supposed to be only repeatedly shocked by the torture we're witnessing on screen and, dare I say, not get anything out of it, making it, like to use your word, reprehensible.
1: See, 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 you you mentioned something interesting here. You said you compared it to Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Yeah. And that is a movie, it's a passion play, and a passion play is a play that highlights the intense physical torment that Jesus Christ allegedly went through uh, at the end of his life. Uh, and it makes the torment, the idea that he is suffering for the sins of the people in the audience and the world mm. at large, uh, something that we, the audience is meant to understand and appreciate and say, wow, that guy did that for us. He did that. That's horrible. That's the most yeah, horrible pain yeah. you can go through. I got something out of that. I, I appreciate like the extent this person went to in order to like make the world a better place. Wow. Um, if you remove... From a passion play, the storyteller's respect, admiration, and love for the victim, Mm -hmm. you're left with a snuff film.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: that's... and this movie feels like a snuff film. It's not well, literally, obviously, but well, as,
0: as it has the this, passion of the Christ. This, yeah, yeah, I have, but I argue the that at the very but, yeah. least, there's
1: a point behind that. Here, the point is for us to witness the suffering, yeah. and and not get out of like, wow, you know, I really, I, I never really thought of it like that way before. Like, no, it's meant to depict Marilyn Monroe suffering, and you can tell this because. This movie takes a lot of liberties with Marilyn Monroe's life, mm-hmm. a lot, and a lot of movies do this. A lot of movies, and some people have said, "Oh, this isn't a biopic; it's based on a novel. It's a story of Marilyn Monroe's life." Yeah, calling it not a biopic is like it's it, like is, saying the is, new uh,
0: the new Lion King was was live action. Like it's not yeah. accurate.
1: It's, 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 it's not accurate. It, it's not. There are a lot of biopics that take a lot of liberties in people's lives. It's attempting to tell you this, a, a story of Marilyn Monroe mm-hmm. in perhaps a more interpretive way but regardless, they're doing it and it's certainly something where if you don't pay really close attention to the credits because they don't call attention to this. They don't say this is a work of fiction at the beginning. They mm-hmm. just say at the end it's based on a novel in one title card and they don't yeah, call a lot of it, attention to it's it. It's based on a novel by Joyce If you saw this movie without hearing yeah. any of the interviews you'd assume it was a biopic. Yeah biopics take liberties with people's lives you have to you can't fit someone's whole life in a movie you have to cut things out you have to uh combine a few characters in order to just sort of streamline the story a little bit we accept that some biopics add elements of the story because it creates a dramatic construct that is useful a good example of this Mm -hmm. at the end of the movie ed wood Ed Wood, arguably one of the worst filmmakers who ever lived, certainly one of the least polished, uh, is having incredible trouble making movies, getting funding, having uh, producers tell him what to do, who to put in his movies, how how to tell the story, change the ending, and it's incredibly demoralizing to him. And there's a scene in the movie, which almost certainly didn't happen in real life. There's no reason to expect that it did, mm-hmm. where he happens to be in a bar in Hollywood, oh. <laughs> and, and he sees in the bar mm. Orson Welles, just sitting there in a corner, just going over, doing some work, looking at storyboards. Yeah, it's
0: it's a Vincent, and he goes over Vincent D'Onofrio yeah. plays Orson Welles, and uh, Marce Marsh plays the voice.
1: Yeah, and he talks to Orson Welles, and he says to Orson Welles, I'm a big fan, I just wanted to say hi, and they commiserate because... Ed Wood, one of the worst filmmakers who ever lived, that's the legend, and Orson Welles, one of the best filmmakers who ever lived, also the legend, happened to have the same problem. Mm-hmm. They were both going through production woes. They were both having their films recut without them. And it contextualized it. And it made him realize that Ed Wood's story, even though he's an odd gentleman, is not unlike anyone else in Hollywood. And he's, it's, it's just a matter of taste. And that you know what? That adds interesting context. It's a nice little scene. Yeah. The scenes that they add in *Blonde* are scenes of intense physical victimization that we see vividly. Mm-hmm. That there is no to to the, all the research I've done, every everything I've read, no reason to believe it actually happened. Yeah, it's not even rumored; it's just not a thing.
0: It, it completely uh, fictional. We see it,
1: yeah. uh, uh, horrible medical situations that she endures. That again, no reason to believe any of that actually happened. They add physical degradation and violence and they show it vividly and then they have the audacity to argue that these moments that the scene you talked about where she goes to audition and then she is assaulted and it's Mm. it's horrible Um, and then they follow that with a scene where she's just like and it turns out she got a part and it's like that's how her career got started it wasn't because of her talent determination her skill her charisma her intelligence it's the scene of horrifying violence that the movie made up and then decided that that's what her entire career was based on was her sexuality that was taken away from her violently
0: yeah Yeah.
1: that's that's what Marilyn Monroe was you made that up
0: and you decided (laughs) that
1: that's the cornerstone of her character was a thing you made up that is character assassination let alone just cruel here's someone who is dead and cannot defend themselves and you're not just like changing the story a little bit to make it a little easier to tell which isn't always a good thing you're torturing them on camera for no greater purpose than to hurt them and to change their narrative so that their entire life everything that they've done is demeaned mm-hmm. even a even scene where we see her uh, auditioning for a movie and she's great yeah the, Anna de is actually doing a very good job in this movie for the most part yeah, um, um,
0: she she gets the voice mostly right uh, Anna de is is a Cuban actress and so she yeah. uh, English wasn't her first language and she doesn't have like the uh, the accent just right uh so but but i think that adds to like a a certain degree of of unreality it's it's fine it's it's not an issue that's that's not my i
1: I don't think it's a particular problem i'm willing to let that all slide um Um, she she does this scene where she's uh um is it don't bother to knock i think it's the movie
0: okay
1: she's acting in the scene and she's very emotionally frail and we see after she leaves the the casting director and the director of the film are basically saying just like she was awful. Yeah, I was like watching someone like collapse in in, in a mental facility. Mm-hmm. And even though she's really really talented and they say yeah, but she's very sexually attractive and so let's give her the part. And I'm like, can does anyone know cuz she was a popular actor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not just because she was attractive. She's also very talented. Yeah. No one can notice this. No one can at least acknowledge. Yeah, that, this. that's no one. No one can give her any credit whatsoever, that, except as a. Victim. Yeah, that, that's that's nightmarish. It's monstrous.
0: Well, and here and here's the thing: it's not just that uh, that she's being victimized; it's that she has no confidants in this movie either. There's nobody standing mm, up for yeah. for Marilyn, uh, and. to to the point where like even when somebody is like Marilyn's not in the room and somebody's like confiding with somebody else about her it's like they don't have anything positive to say about her. Nobody says, it turns out she needs help in this way. Or it turns out she's actually looking for this kind of a role and we should maybe look for that. Oh, no, wait, that's not the way Holly... Like, there's not even those moments. Mm-hmm. When we have moments of quiet where people are just talking about uh, Marilyn, they're still objectifying her. They're still just talking about her, her body parts and how she's a sex object. Uh, mm-hmm. I I I don't really know what Andrew Dominic is trying to get at here uh, other than to say that she lived a life of pain and that's all she lived a life of. And my my assumption is this is one of those things where it's based on very limited information. This isn't like a deeply researched film into Marilyn Monroe's life. This is uh somebody who knows who Marilyn Monroe is. Has maybe seen a movie or two of hers, and knows maybe a little bit about her backstory—that she, you know, she had uh, wrestled with addiction, that she mm-hmm. was, was abused, that she had uh, famous husbands that also treated her poorly, uh, and then just ratchets those things up to twelve, without giving us any kind of other context for who this person is, why she was famous, or. Why her life had any kind of value. It just takes all of the value out of her life. It's so sick.
1: no, it's 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 distasteful. I mean, that's the thing. Like hmm. you can change things about history if you're trying to tell a story, and it, it can be justified sometimes. Hmm. Here, there's no justification that makes sense other than, Uh, Cruelty. You can say like, "Oh, it's a hard industry, and people are awful in it." Yes, yes, you can. Um, To what end? What are we? What are? What's the point? That's that's a starting point. And this, the the every single point this movie makes could have been completely made over the course of like a music video.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Just like, oh, it's hard being Marilyn Monroe. Yes, yes, I'm sure it was. Um, she's also a human being who led a multifaceted life and while you may have a point to make, your point is reductive and mean Mm. and it makes me not like you for telling it
0: Yeah, Yeah. it is
1: an ugly film that is incredibly off-putting and it's unfortunate it's just an unfortunate experience and it's nearly three hours yeah, of just it's, nonstop abject misery and vivid. This is NC Seventeen. The sexuality is is at no point uh, uh, pleasing. It is all no, pain no, no. and violence. It is not that it should be necessarily pleasing. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying is that it's you you're going out of your way to depict this. Yeah, you're going out of your way to make sure that the audience sees marilyn monroe in a worse light why what do you have against her i don't understand it
0: yeah i don't understand
1: I'm... what what you have against her or if you think this is in some way a positive thing i am deeply concerned that you think <laughs> that's the case because i don't think that's healthy i don't think that's a healthy view of anyone's life
0: no um and, and maybe it's just gross Okay, um, I don't want to give this film much of the benefit of the doubt because I hate it, but uh, mm. uh, maybe there's a case to be made for the fact that Marilyn lived like long enough ago that we can start playing fast and loose with with her history. Because I know there's some sort of like fictional statute of limitations on this sort of thing. That if if a a, well. a historical figure has receded far enough into history that we can start talking about their legend as much as we can talk about their lives. And I've, you, you can yeah. see this... Like, look at a, a film like Amadeus. Mozart died long enough wow. ago that we can sort of understand that this is a story of his life and not see it as a disrespect to Mozart.
1: Well, here's the thing that... I think it's an interesting example, actually, mm. and I was actually, I'm glad you brought that up. Mm. Amadeus is also not strictly a biopic because it takes huge historical liberties. Yeah. Not with Mozart, specifically, but with Antonio Salieri, who was one of Mozart's contemporaries. And the plot of the play and then the movie is that Antonio Salieri was so overwhelmingly jealous of Mozart's talent that he intentionally sabotaged Mozart, destroyed mm. his career, and indirectly or directly led to his early death. Uh, mm. that was, no, that's Salieri, true, yeah. <laughs> by all by all historical counts, didn't do any of that. In fact, was actually allegedly a pretty good friend of Mozart and did nothing but help his career as best he could. But Amadeus, best picture winner, great movie
0: mm-hmm.
1: has completely changed the narrative of Antonio Salieri's life to the point where now his name is synonymous with mediocrity and villainy. Uh-huh. And I think when you when you change history to negatively impact someone's image, not neutrally, not positively, although that can be a problem too, if it's the wrong type of person, but uh when you change it to negatively impact someone. You run the risk of changing the narrative of their life. And Marilyn Monroe's narrative has been hijacked so many times. Yeah. There are people who are like, oh, Marilyn Monroe was assassinated because JFK told her too much. Oh, right, right. Yeah. And I've I'm like, apparently one. they had sex once. When did he tell her this? <laughs> when, did, when did he sit her down and give her a PowerPoint presentation? It's not oh, okay. So <laughs> Reminds me of it, a good...
0: It uh... would be one
1: thing, if it was... It, it, be a, a movie I was thinking like I, I would have been fine with if you are going to change my own story uh-huh. It's something like Bubba Hotep. <laughs> there <laughs> you know, like, go. Uh, Elvis uh, have... didn't die and fought a mummy in a retirement home. Yeah. You know what? That's relatively harmless because we all know that shit didn't happen.
0: Well, you don't so know that. But maybe, maybe. Renicula,
1: f- <laughs> I would have been like, you know what? We can all have a little fun with this. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Maybe it depends on how you do it. But when it's a matter of we're going to fictionalize it so that they look worse. Yeah. And that they suffered more than they probably did, and they suffered enough. Um, I I think that I think the statute of limitations still applies. Okay. In this one, I think this is because it's how you do it. Really. And mm-hmm. I think it's just weirdly... It's not even opening old wounds. It's opening new wounds. The op- opening, and I yeah, don't opening don't wounds the
0: that never shut is what's happening.
1: Yeah. And again, the movie itself is just deeply unpleasant and cruel to watch. Mm. It just is. And, it's, yeah, and, it, and, and to no meaningful end.
0: Yeah, there, And that sucks. Yeah. the um, there, There's been some you know, controversy over the sexuality. You mentioned, yeah, it's like... It, it's all un, unpleasant and aggressive and, and bad. Uh, it's... I, I I don't object to the to the sexuality because it's sex you know i'm I'm mm-hmm. I'm it, this is not a matter of like prudishness it's uh the way the sex is wielded And it's all wielded in this very ugly manner and it's you know all 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 seen as very aggressive and that that's the unpleasant part of this that's the unpleasant part of the the, the use of its sexuality um yeah yeah there... I guess the photography's okay. Uh, I'm not going to put any of this on Ana de Armas. She's been in plenty of bad Mm. movies and I think she's still fine. Um, uh, Oh, she was in a really awful movie just earlier this year. She was in the gray man. So like she's she's taking these high profile jobs because good for her. She can take whatever high profile jobs she wants. Uh, and yeah, she was really committed to this part and I think she's fine, but, uh, it's all in service of something that's really empty and really kind of cruel and just not, not really redeeming in any kind of way. So on that note, <laughs> uh, let's, let's wrap this
1: thing up. So let's review our movies on a scale of C minus to C plus. That's how we review movies of the critically acclaimed network. We review them on a scale of C minus to C plus a C is average, some good, some bad, some more for one audience than another. It's just kind of okay. C plus is above average. We genuinely recommend those movies. Maybe we even think they're great, but we those are our recommendations. We definitely recommend those. Yeah. And a C-minus is below average. We do not recommend those. We think those are particularly noteworthily subpar.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, on that note, uh, Whitney, what do you give Blonde?
0: <laughs> Blonde, Blonde is most certainly a C-minus. This is one of the worst movies of the year. Uh, there, there's... There, there's really not a lot of positive things I can say about this. I, I was just grossed out by the whole thing, and it's, and it's way too long. It gets really tedious after a while.
1: It's like three hours yeah. of nonstop misery to, again, no meaningful end. And, yeah, and I'm or giving or, it at C minus. Or, it's like, easily uh, one of the worst movies of the mm-hmm. year. It's probably the absolute worst at the moment. Yeah, it's just I, uh, not good at all
0: and, and this is coming from somebody who likes miserable movies i, I saw a movie sure. last year called the painted bird which was a, a litany of suffering but i feel like that one was about the horrors of war and it actually had a lot of mm-hmm. it, like this interesting picaresque going on and that's not there was a noble here. intention yeah.
1: in putting you through it yeah
0: yeah, yeah. like su- yeah. Su- it's not suffering that i'm objecting to it's the way this film did it
1: yeah uh, okay, I'm going to move on to a totally different topic, Hocus Pocus 2. Mm. Uh, Hocus Pocus 2, I'm going to give a very high C. Okay. Uh, if you're a fan of Hocus Pocus, it's probably nudge it up to a C-plus for you. If not, it's cute, mm. but the original does it, and it does it a little bit better. But it's an, it's an okay follow-up, and it's good to see the gang back together again. Uh, Whitney, what about
0: the monsters? Oh, uh, the... Uh, I'm going to give The Monster a C. Uh, I, I'm not so passionate that I'm going to give it a C plus, but I do really like this movie. I really enjoy it. I think it's getting a, a bit of a bum rap. Uh, it's there's something about its cheapness and its corniness that I found very bright and infectious.
1: Yeah, I'm going to give it. I, I can't quite bring myself. I'm going to have to give it a very high C minus. Okay, it's just too long and not funny enough, and I can't quite do that. But this is no animosity whatsoever it's just i appreciate what you're doing i think you did a lot of things right i just don't think it i don't think it really came together but i would actually like to see more because i think you got more comfortable with it and mm. you know if you ever did another one i'd be interested and hoping for the best uh but again the, the cast is also quite good and the production design is really really fun so yeah, there's that. yeah. uh the greatest spear run ever i'm giving a c minus it's actually not an entirely unpleasant watch and that's the problem mm. Uh, because it really softens the most important hard hitting aspects of the story. And that's the whole reason why it exists. Yeah. And that's also very ill-advised and kind of irresponsible. And I don't think it works at all. Uh,
0: Whitney, bros. Bros, I give a C plus. I really, really like, mm. like this movie. I liked how frank and honest it was. I liked how, uh, it talked about grown-up relationships in a, a, a really, um, uh, important kind of a way, uh, I, I I appreciate that it's about, like, queer men my age talking about the things that are important to them in relationships, and that's very relatable just for a, a guy like me.
1: That's awesome. Mm. Uh, and then finally, Smile. I'm going to give Smile a big old C+. plus. Mm. Um, it's You can kind of see the DNA of other horror movies in it, but that's just a genre. That's not a problem. Yeah. What matters here is that the movie is super scary, and it actually puts together its story very, very well in a way that has something on its mind while consistently frightening the pants off of you. So a mm-hmm. big old C-plus for me.
0: I also give it a C-plus. Uh, yeah, I, I I think it's just a, a scary film. I think it handles its psychology very well, which is admirable. And yeah, it provides some nice, good uh, scare moments to keep you really frightened rather than just sort of fake you out. Um, yeah, just a good horror movie. All right, well,
1: that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with a review of the new Hellraiser.
0: Yeah, Hellraiser, it's the 11th film. Uh, and wow. uh, I don't know how much it's going to play into the mythology of the previous 10. So we'll, we'll find out.
1: <laughs> yeah, Hellraiser's been on a weird journey, so we're going to have to walk you through what's happened in Hellraiser, <laughs> because it's <laughs> it's like most people, I've seen a lot of people online, like, there are how many Hellraiser movies? I'm like, yeah, it's mm. been weird. So we'll talk a bit about that next week and there's other stuff coming out next week too. We'll review that as well. Yes. Uh thank you everybody for listening. Feel free if you want to talk to us about anything we discussed in this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is letters at critically Uh we're also uh have a P.O. box. Whitney, what is our PO box?
0: Yeah, send us an actual physical letter to uh P.O. box six four one five six five. Los Angeles, California, nine double zero six four
1: yeah, and, uh, uh, and other stuff uh, as well. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. You can listen to this show and all of our other new shows ad-free. You'll also get a ton of other exclusive podcasts. Depending on what tier you're on, you'll get more than others. Uh, and uh, hey, and listen, we know we missed uh, some opportunities to do some podcasts last week. We've got some stuff to catch up on, so stay tuned. We've got another Iron List. We've got uh, a bunch of new cool stuff coming in the very, very Mm -hmm. near future. We're catching up. Uh, So thank you, everybody, for listening. Don't forget we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. And never forget, everyone's a critic.
0: I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?